There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play store. Know where you stand with OnX. Okay, before we start, this is the... uh, this is the biggest thing to happen since the business shot. Eli Whit the cotton gin. No, like since the opening hostilities of the French and Indian war, this is the biggest thing to happen. Um, going on, uh, going on tour called meat eater off the air. Me, Steve, Cal, Cal, that's me. Uh, <laughs> and, and Yanni and friends, are going on on our tour, and you'll be able to see and hear things that you will not be able to see and hear anywhere else. We got 11 cities. Me and Cal are going to take turns naming the cities. I'll start. San Francisco. Portland. Phoenix. Los Angeles. Philadelphia. Boston. Detroit. Detroit. (laughs) Minneapolis. Chicago. D.C. Pittsburgh. Tickets go on sale Friday, January 17th, but are available exclusively to the Meat Eater community beginning January 14th at 10 a.m. local venue times. So in your venue, whatever becomes 10 a.m. for you, you go on our site, themeateater.com, go to the live events, and you'll find your venue, and you use the promo code MUGS. And then you get tickets before they go on just general national sale. We're also going to have an exclusive meet and greet where we uh, take some photos, sign some stuff, sign books. That's available for VIP ticket holders. There's only 65 of those VIP tickets per show. So get on that. 
But Meat Eater off the air. Come seeing me, me, Yanni, Ocal. We're thinking about having a thing at the show. When I when I was a kid and you went to a wedding, they had a thing called the dollar dance. And you would come and like pay a buck and dance with if it was a dude, I think it worked like this. You'd throw a dollar in. And it's like, I think if it was like a dude, you dance with the bride. It's called the dollar dance. It's a big part of every wedding. You put in a buck or five bucks or something, dance with the bride. Corinne, why you know do you not know what I'm talking about? Our producer, Corinne. Corinne, do you understand what I'm talking about? A dollar dance. Have you been to a wedding with a dollar dance? Uh, I have not. No, but I'm I'm getting like a picture in my mind of. There's a part of the thing. Everybody's a little lubed up. Okay. That's a euphemism for drinking. <laughs> yeah, really? And they, uh, it's a big part of the night. Everybody lines up. It's a way to raise money for the bride and groom to buy okay. like a house. Huh. Everybody lines up, and you throw a dollar into a can, and you get a very very short dance with the bride. Or, I how, think, a shot. How short? Real like sh- just, It depends just, on the line. Okay. A quick dance. It'll be the like a lot of people per song. Oh, got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, like a song, the bride might dance with 10 people. Got it. Who are all throwing in money to raise money for the couple. Or, I think you get a shot, or it was like ladies get a shot. Dudes. Either way, you get what I'm saying. Okay. It's called yep. the dollar dance. Yep, the dollar dance. Got it. Yeah. I, we're thinking about having a thing, um, dollar dance with Cal for 20 bucks. <laughs> but it all goes to conservation. I want to end the I want to end the off the air live shows where you can either leave or do a dollar dance with Cal for twenty bucks. Uh, all you folks <laughs> listening, go go get your tickets for this. The most important part will be uh, hoping to win a dance with Cal. Not yeah. win. You're buying, buying a dance. Do- fifty bucks, no twenty winning. bucks, twenty bucks. There's dollar no dance with Cal for twenty bucks. You can. Whisper. I've already got I already got the playlist in my head. But what if we're like- gonna have a spotlight shining down on Cal? <laughs> You can whisper in my ear all the things I'm getting wrong, uh, but whisper loudly because I'm deaf. Yeah, and I was thinking about ladies get a kiss for an extra five. Oh, <laughs> oh you're going to make so much money. So much money for conservation. But what if there are like a thousand people? Then if, are they if, gonna if, get it, like gets, if it gets that bad, me and Yanni will jump in and we'll start dancing with people too. <laughs> if but, but but my wife pointed out that no one's going to want to dance with me and Yanni. They're going to want to dance with Cal. But if someone was like, you know, needed to get out of there because babysitter or whatever, and they just needed a dance, they didn't care who they got it from, I'll give them a kiss. Right. Okay. <laughs> Java cool. dance with Cal. It will months. be a great... <laughs> Uh, opportunity to come down and have fun with a bunch of outdoors folks. Meat so. Eater off the air, 11 cities. Tickets go on sale Friday, January 14th. That's by just, that's the exclusive thing on our own website, themeateater.com. Promo code MUGS. 10 a.m. your time. Off the air, folks. Dance with Cal. Okay, we're joined by a very special guest, Whit Bosberg. Second ever time on the show. Good to be here. Uh, the first time we, we did what we're going to do right now, we did like a conservation roundup. Yeah, it was out in there, 2018, out on the eastern shore yeah. after you'd been seca uh, hunting. And now that 2019, we're kind of like the dust is settling. I mean, there's a new dust to stir, but the dust is settling from 2019, and we can review like the lay of the land. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, first, we got to take care of some. Oh, oh, and uh, we need to say, yeah, Yanni's gone. Well, Whit Fosberg, CEO. Oh, I, I, uh, I, you know, I said that the first time, but yeah. Phil hadn't done his, you know, <laughs> um, CEO of uh, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, TRCP. We talk about it a fair bit. Yeah. Um, Yanni's gone. 
This is the fourth ever episode he wasn't present for. He's out uh, ice fishing. He's on assignment. It's part of our fur hat ice tour, which we haven't announced. And uh, Yanni and I were duck hunting the other day, and he let me know that he is not much of an ice fisherman, which I found kind of shocking uh, when you take into consider, um, you know, where he hails from. And yeah, but he's not a true outdoorsman. He just, oh, I, come on. He is not a true outdoorsman. I will often, I will often uh, invite him to go do things. I'll be like, hey, let's go ice fishing. And he can't because he's going skiing. <laughs> he prior, like, you cannot be a true outdoorsman and a skier. Nah. You just can't do it. That's why me and Seth, the flip-flop flasher, are the only true outdoorsmen. <laughs> you can't, you can't, unless you ski to, unless you're like skiing to hunt snowshoes or something, you cannot, it just doesn't work. I, I was flabbergasted recently to find out that, that, that his family didn't hunt on Christmas Day. Oh, really? I no, thought they had they sit on their butts. or something. No, huh. they don't hunt on Christmas Day. He grew up not hunting Christmas Day. Not taking a walk in the woods for squirrels or rabbits or ice fishing. The whole day, they just sat there. Well, they're up all night doing their pagan rituals that time of year. Yeah, though, and then so. they, they drink too much. Oh. <laughs> the Latvian people. Uh, quick, before we get into the main stuff here. The, the, the lamestream media refuses to cover um, what happens with people's. We've been talking a lot about this. What happens to people's limbs and fingers and whatnot when they lose them? Um, here's a fresh story. This guy, there's a guy in Edmonton. The guy just sent this thing. We've been talking. I don't know how it came up, but somehow we got a. Oh, it was from getting degloved. Oh, conversations okay. around your wedding ring tearing the skin off your finger and yeah. how silicon wedding rings are the way to go. I, I switched to no ring at all recently because I lost mine, my rubber one. Um, but that got us into talking about. Uh, just various things that have happened to people's fingers and arms. There's this article out about this guy in Edmonton who got in a crash a long time ago and his arm, he lost the use of his arm, but he packed it around. He's on a motorbike, his brother's motorbike. Uh, And he packed it around for 20 years, not working. Arm didn't work. So eventually he thought just time to move on and had the arm amputated. Told, tells the doctor that he wants to keep it. And in the end, after he gets his arm amputated, he goes back and brings his frozen arm home in a sack. <laughs> Calls around to a bunch of taxidermists, and most of them won't even consider his request. And eventually he gets hold of a taxidermist. They even give the name of the tax. I want to give kudos to this taxidermist. Legends Taxidermy in Drayton Valley. Alberta, uh, they finally agree to take care of it. And he gets it Euro-mounted. And it's funny because the article I'm looking at, uh, um, there's an image of him holding this bone arm up and a warning about graphic images below the image. So it's like, you already saw the image. Uh he brings it, he brought it to Christmas this year to show everybody. He says that he thinks he might eventually retire the arm, and he's thinking about, uh, I'll quote him, 
I'm just going to keep it probably behind the sink in the kitchen. <laughs> from the huh? There's a good line <laughs> from the taxidermist. So it's a husband-wife taxidermy team. You know from this story? <laughs> yes. Oh, you know more than I know about it? No, I just you. Sounds like you know more, but I just read a different. Oh, the short short version when oh, it first so you came got out. A, you heard a quote from the taxidermist. Yes, and uh, uh, so the uh, one-armed man calls, and the wife picks up the phone, and she's like, "Well, you need to bring it down in person so I can make sure it's your arm," <laughs> which I found entertaining. Oh yeah, if a guy with two arms shows up. <laughs> And he's got an arm in a sack and says he wants his arm. I would be incredulous. Yes. And then, uh, so, I'd, the I'd smell a fish for sure. The husband, the second half of the taxidermy team, says, you know, what's up? And she says, well, this is what's happening. And he says, no way. And she says, well, he's on his way down here already. Um, and the detail that I kind of want because she she did say that like did they you know, beetle did they beetle clean it? That's the detail that I want because I I would feel very differently. So typically for a European mount, you either boil slash steam the meat and hide off of bone. Phil, are you busy down there? Yeah. Would you mind checking to see if Legends Taxidermy in Drayton Valley uh have, if they advertise beetle cleaning services? Beetle cleaning. Legends taxidermy Legends in Drayton taxidermy. Valley. But real curious, was it beetles or was it a boil and clean? Right, because you're you kind of you're smelling what I'm getting at, right? It'd oh, just I'm be a little it. different. But I'd never look at my beetles the same way again. If I was using dermifted beetles to clean it. Yeah. What do you find this interesting or not interesting? Fascinating. Fa- yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great cast <laughs> characters. Uh and then they had to get, uh, so we'll let that linger until we get, get the, the final result. But um, they had to, with, with the bones that were left mm-hmm. after the cleaning process, um, Legends Taxidermy then reached How out. How do you know so much more about this? This was just a real tight snippet. and Kind of from their perspective. I, th- I, oh, I can't remember where it was from. But uh, anyway, they had to reach out to... A doctor friend of theirs, um, hand doctor, assume, assumedly, and they the doctor then put it back together for them because she apparently looked at the pile of bones and was like, I am not uh, familiar <laughs> like, with this. I got no idea how this goes together. <laughs> Which you'd be kind of bummed, right, if that's your – because you can't give them another arm to work on. Did you get any sense of what they – we should just call these guys up. Did you get any sense of what they charged for this? Oh, that was not in the article. Not in my version. You know, I never endorse taxidermists, but, um, well, no, I will because there's a uh, Justin Sable. Dude, Justin, Sa- I took two Justin heads Sable and yesterday, Bozeman. and he called me yesterday afternoon and was like, yeah, come get these things. He doesn't waste time. He's and, got a system dialed. And then I uh, immediately regretted the price that we settled on. So they, they don't have a- Homie, you got overcharged? <laughs> when I finally cave in. And pay for something, I want it to be as painful and arduous for the person I'm paying as possible. Oh, I got you. That way I feel like I got my money's worth. Yeah, so you haggled. You can't, I can't argue with the speed. Oh, it's Sable. Amazing. Does he, is, is Justin Sable's, uh, does he go by, is it Sable Tax? What does he call this place? No, it's Bridger Canyon Taxidermy. Yeah, he's a good dude. Love that guy. 
does a great job. I met his mom. Huh. Super nice. You see, his, you see his lion hounds? Yeah, I knocked on the wrong door. Yeah. And instead of uh, telling me to go around the house and follow the path, which I later found, to Justin's studio, um, she's like, come with me. And we just walked through the house. That She was in her uh, nightgown. And, Is that right? Uh, <laughs> robe. And I felt she's, pretty bad about she's the She's ready thing. for bedtime. Well, she was just, just getting ready for the day. Oh, okay. Um, but she was watching somebody else's dog that she was very politely cussing out the whole time, which was cute. So, How's it going, Phil? Uh, so they don't have a legitimate website, but they have a Facebook page. There's, hmm. not, there's not a lot of info, but on December 18th, they posted a picture of them building uh, some sort of, a, I don't know. An arm? Box, and it says our new custom home for our Beatles is almost done. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Right. Good yeah. detective work, Phil. This guy's like a private investigator. There we go. <laughs> uh, yeah. One more quote um, from, from the guy. He, he said that he's talking about calling different taxidermists. He says, a couple of them told me no, like right away. There was no way they were going to touch human body parts. All right. So that's the major news. Um, quick thing. We were talking about dead as a doornail. Do you guys know what that means? This is a correction. I was like, why is a doornail dead? What? Nope. Beyond me. Where that expression comes from? Phil? Got nothing? Nothing. Do you still have Yanni's sound bites queued up? <laughs> not not right now. I didn't know he he wasn't gonna be here today. Um Yeah. Yeah. So let's we'll tack one in. Okay. And I'll, and I'll say, Yanni, you know what that is a doornail means? And then yep. you'll insert a good sound bite from Yanni. Got it. Uh he he's got a stab at the where dead is a doornail comes from. It was explained to me, he's, an, he's a carpenter, and when he was an apprentice carpenter, it was explained to him that frontier doors were made with two layers of boards with the grain running at 90 degree angles, and the nails were driven through and clenched. This makes a strong door that was not easily chopped through, right? Yeah. Because you want to, you know, you enter in, like you run your, anyone who's using an axe knows you want to run your axe in, if you want to splinter something, you run your axe in. Parallel to the grain, the blade being parallel to the grain. Or with the grain, right? With the grain, but it's backed by boards that are cross. Uh, and he got that, he goes on to say that this makes a strong door that was nightly chopped through with a tomahawk. Now, nails were hard to come by and expensive. So oftentimes they were used time and again, except doornails. Being clenched that tight, there was no way to straighten them. So they were considered dead. The only way to resuscitate them is they'd be recycled at the blacksmith shop. I like that. You like that one? I do. Yep. That works. You guys buying it? Yep. First framer I worked for, his dad was also a framer, and that's what he did every night. He'd have a beer out in his shop, and he'd straighten all the bent nails that he picked up around the job site and then, then distribute the uh, straightened nails the next day to his crew. That's good. Yeah. When I was a kid, when you my when my dad was annoyed with you, one of the things he would do is give you a he kept a two pound meatloaf tin oh. full of bent, rusty nails. And now and then you'd get like a checklist of chores you're supposed to do and on there was straightening those damn nails out on a am, hammer and anvil for reuse. <laughs> uh okay, first thing we want to do, um can you explain, get an update on what's going on with New Mexico stream access law? Yes. Yeah, so basically, 
the foundation of this is uh, New Mexico State Constitution. It says all water belongs to the public. This is just as brief a synopsis as I can give here. Yeah, but there's some stuff changing. There's like trouble brewing. 2017, um, a bill came up in, uh, and, and was voted on to then have a process to which landowners could declare their water non-navigable, and they added a, a rule, an amendment. So the landowner gets to say. The landowner gets to apply okay. for the section of water if they have their properties on both sides of the stream or river. Got you. So and if then, he's got a case of the ass and wants people not access, and he can go and say, like, hey, you know. Yes. And then New Mexico Fish and Game declares or does not declare, looks at his or the landowner's situation, says, yeah, this applies or does not apply. Um, so far, there's been five permits applied for and received. Two are pending. An additional two are pending. Hold on. So five have been accepted. Yes. Yeah. Um, the... I think Pecos and Chama um, would be uh, two uh, water. Do you, any sense that, of what kind of dudes these dudes are that are that are trying to get their stuff revoked? I I would love to get back in there and do some proper research and see exactly what the cases are. You know, yeah. Um, for you know, public sway reasons, the the ones that get thrown up are like fishing lodges. You know, uppity fishing lodges. Yeah, that's what I'm curious. I say, like, what kind of dudes is it? Is it like that? Like, what's the motivation? Is it is it trophy home? You know, is it like eighth generation ranchers? Is it fly shops? And so, you know, from the private side of things, it's like, well, you know, people are just coming in here and and leaving trash, and Mm -hmm. and I'm sick of it. um, Which we can all understand. Nobody likes to see trash outside. But anyway. the so new governor Michelle Lujan, a uh, couple new seats on the New Mexico Fish and Game Board, and um, November 2019, the uh, state attorney general Hector Balderas um, reevaluates uh, because he's been asked to by the New Mexico Fish and Game Board. Um, and finds that the new rule, this non navigable water rule is unconstitutional and unenforceable. All right, so hold on a minute. I'm going to make sure I'm getting this right. All waters, historically, all water is regarded as public. They make a rule that says you can pull your shit out of it. Then the new administration comes in and appointees there say, you know what, you shouldn't be able to pull your shit out of it. Yes, and uh, this was has been tested several times. Um, the case that gets brought up the most uh, was in 1945, went up, all the way through the New Mexico Supreme Court. The New, New Mexico Supreme Court at that time said, you know, according to the state constitution, all water belongs to the people of New Mexico. Um, and then just to kind of like show support for this, and this is this was just at the beginning of, or I'm sorry, the end of 2019, just a couple months ago, Senator Udall and Heinrich and U.S. Rep. Deb Haaland, uh, they wrote in in support of a moratorium on non-navigable permits. So folks that wanted 
gotcha. to apply for this non-navigable status, which is obviously in great question. Um, uh, Udall, Heinrich, Halen, they wrote in to the Fish and Game Board said, hey, for all these reasons that benefit our state, we'd appreciate it if you guys would put a moratorium on this. Um, and now to get into really the um, the gossip section of this, the intrigue is um, there. Uh, Joanna Prukup, who was a department head for fishing game, New Mexico fishing game for over twenty years, uh, was one of the new seats on the New Mexico uh, fishing game board. Yep, commission, and um, she just got notice. She had a lot of, um, you know, public water folks really happy with her, and um, and she just got notice that she will not uh, be reinstated. So, but she's pro public access, not anti public access. Correct. Huh. Correct. So, um, so she's getting she's getting like uh, in trouble for having stuck up for stream access law, and that that was a question. In the beginning, uh, and she just came out and and made a formal statement that she says this is all she can come up with. She said, look at my background, um, look at my track record. There's no way I should be not asked back to sit on this commission. Um, This is what it boils down to is the stream access situation. And, um, you know, it, it unfortunately gets gets down to this core argument of the us versus them type of situation. And if you have, if you, if you own both sides of a river, chances are, um, you, uh, have some influence and folks are like, see, it's the rich folks swinging yeah. their weight around, yeah. um, against the little folks. And yeah, it's, it is a bummer. It affects everybody. If if this law were to go through, stream access allows a lot of access, um, not just for fishing. I use it a lot. Used it a couple times for hunts this year in the state of Montana. Tubing and drinking beers. Well, that's just good good family fun, right? So Heinrich does a lot for people. Does a lot for access issues. Well, he he's got some stake in the game because yeah. he likes to actually go out and do that stuff. Yeah, so he's that's like different. a. You, uh, there's a sitting U.S. senator from New Mexico, Martin Heinrich, who went out on public land and killed a bull with a muzzleloader. She could be like coming down the trail. I think he got an archery bull this year, too. Yeah, coming down yeah. the trail and run into a dude and shoot the breeze with a dude and then realize he's a sitting senator. And you have some, some common <laughs> interests. Parked <laughs> at the trailhead, man. I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So that's... Um, you know, this is something that's going to go on for a long time. Yeah. But right now, and I should say, you can't trespass across private property to get to public water. Yeah. Right? You have to enter the water legally. Um, and in this, so right now, they're saying that um, you could get issued a warning, but you will not be issued a ticket. If you are found in these sections of water that have been deemed non-navigable. Oh, got you. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, 
I, I, I know there was some buildup uh, back in 2017 when um, this came up in front of the, the house there in New Mexico, but I, I can't believe this. It was such a good rule favoring public access in a place that's got a lot of public land, New Mexico. Uh, I can't, I can't believe it. It passed in 2017. Makes yeah. me wonder what was going on. Well, right, I, so if you, oh. I assume this is going to get litigated, right? All the way up to probably the state Supreme Court if it's in the Constitution. Yes. And I would. that's what happened here in Montana at, on multiple occasions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, most recently it was Sailor Lane, right? Was that, that was the most recent one down in the Ruby? Maybe. And then you had the whole Mitchell Slew over on the you know, Bitterroot Bitter, before yeah. that. And, you know, this has been sort of a constant theme of the states like Montana and New Mexico, the you know, Utah that have more of these open access you know, policies as opposed to Wyoming and Colorado where the landowner owns the stream bottom. Yes. And if, if man, if, if the biggest gripe is people leaving their trash behind, like I absolutely get that. I hate seeing trash. And um, for one reason or another, when I was hunting down New it's Mexico not about, this year, that's not it was what it's bad. About. But that's a, that's a red herring. It's like a pro. It's too important. That's not what like, it's about. Yeah. Well, trash is annoying, but that's not what this is about. Uh, yeah, if you live in New Mexico or hang out in New Mexico, you should watch the issue because it has a lot to do with, like, your ability. And, and people that live in states where you have stream access, you don't even think about how good you have it. You know, we grew up with in Michigan where you go to the launch on a river or a lake or whatever. You go to the public launch and put your boat in, and then you go down the river and you wind up in a spot where – there's private landowners on either side. You don't even think about it. You just like paddle down, motor down. Um, you can't take that for granted. This is like uh, one of the ways that people will attack your ability to go outside and enjoy nature. And and definitely, New Mexico is absolutely gorgeous. I love land of enchantment. Right? It's. Did you come up with that? Uh, a little something I came <laughs> up with. <laughs> um, if it can happen there, it can happen. Uh, where we have it good here in Montana and Idaho. Um, so, th- I mean, this is everybody's issue. We all have the ability to travel to these places and, and enjoy, um, you know, these states' rights. And, um, boy, it, it's hugely beneficial to um, have the ability to truck down, a, you know, hike down a stream a mile and, and hunt in some hard-to-get-to spots and or just fish the thing and... Um, Something you got to pay attention to because I, I just feel like if anywhere within the U.S. we demonstrate, you know, a blasé attitude, uh, you know, a, not the willingness to fight over this stuff. Yeah. Man, it, it's just a slippery slope from there. It's everybody's issue. Yeah. And I think it's really exacerbated in a place like New Mexico, which is so dry. You just yeah. have less rivers, less opportunities. So you start taking those away, you know, you've taken away a significant portion. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Like you have limited navigable I mean, waters In anyways. Michigan or New York where I grew up, I mean, there's a lot of water and there's a lot of access. And you lose a stream here or there, you may not notice it. New Mexico, you would notice it. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, Whit, you ready? You're fired up? Let's do it. Okay, 29th, public lands in general. We just covered public waters, but we'll, like if you consider public waters being part of public lands, which is fair. Yep. Uh, 2019, thumbs up, thumbs down? Thumbs up. It was a good year. And we started off good. Uh, right at the beginning of the year, we passed the Senate or Congress passed S-47, the big public lands bill. 
Break, um, break that down a little bit. So it was uh, it did a bunch of different things. And, and the way Congress works these days, you don't pass individual pieces of legislation like a senior wilderness bill or anything. It comes in these big omnibus bills because so little passes anymore that whenever something is moving, everything gets piled onto it. Oh, is that a, that's a strategy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So because, you know, it's just you have very few vehicles move through. So invariably, instead of just one provision, it's going to be 100 provisions. And so that's what happened with the but public what, lands what, bill. But what forms the base in something like that? Um, you know, typically it's, you know, in this one, you, know, could, you could argue that it was Land and Water Conservation Fund. Okay. It could be some of these public lands bills. But essentially, you just you need to have stuff that's— Like that's the, what everything is being tacked on exactly. to. Ideally, you. it's something that a lot of people want to see pass. And really, in this bill, yeah, there was nothing super controversial. So you had over 100 provisions. You had you know, over a million acres of new wilderness created. You had 600 you know, miles of wild and scenic rivers created. You permanently reauthorized Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is the primary tool that we use for public access, especially to public lands. Within that, 3% of that has to be used for public access projects. So this goes back to things like the Onyx report we did. You know, which talks about landlocked public lands. Yeah. You know, both on the federal side as well as on the state side. Collectively, more than 16 million acres of public lands the public can't get to. So, 3% of this land and water conservation fund is now targeted for projects like that by a simple section here or there, an easement someplace that will then open up a lot more public land. So, it's a little bit different way of thinking about access than we have in the past. In the past, land and water conservation fund has been you know, thought of as a tool to preserve big landscapes. You know, big tracts of you know, forests that a timber company is selling, you know, things like that, which are still really important. But another use of it is these small strategic acquisitions that are based around access. And I think we're going to see a lot more than that. We saw that reflected in this bill. So now that has been permanently reauthorized. When, when you say this bill was popular with everybody, like what did it pass by? So the overall package passed in the Senate 92 to 8. And, the and House, what was the what, – what, who like what? Give me a profile of the eight. They have various reasons. No, I remember hearing one time that the wilderness, uh, uh, when they created like the Wilderness Act, mm-hmm. that it was ninety nine to one mm-hmm. in the Senate because the one didn't think it went far enough. Correct. Is that the case with the eight? Oh no! Oh no! No, no, no. no it's the other way around. I mean, you have uh, especially some you know Western senators that honestly just don't like public lands. Yeah. I mean, you look at a guy like Mike Lee in Utah who's sort of made his name. He didn't vote name. for this? No, he didn't. But he's made his name on railing against public land ownership, you know, period. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, some folks thought it spent too much money. You know, it didn't spend all that much money. But anyway, it was sort of ideological anti-public land. You know, that's where the eight came from. Gotcha. So the 92, you know, they were like something more. They would like to have, you know, Land and Water Conservation Fund permanently funded as well. We didn't get that, but we got at least permanently reauthorized. So we don't have to worry about it disappearing in three years or five years or whatever the typical reauthorization is. Um, you know, so that bill was really important. And the fact that it passed by that you know, wide margin, I think, really represents kind of a sea change in a lot of the public lands. You know, we think about the rhetoric over the past you know, 10 years. You went from the Senate passing you know, a nine-bonding resolution that Lisa Murkowski offered that basically said all public lands other than national parks ought to be divested. And, you know, that was – that passed with pretty much all Republican votes. Now, compare that to this where you're expanding protections on public lands, you're expanding wild and scenic rivers, you're expanding the acquisition programs to create more public lands, and it passes 92 to 8. So I think from that original, you know, sort of 
you know, sagebrush rebellion, you know, kind of mentality we were seeing really a decade ago that was, we saw these bills passing on the state levels, like demanding return of public lands to the states, which were never theirs to begin with. But you, I think that rhetoric has really gotten knocked down pretty good. And I think when you saw Jason Chaffetz essentially have to withdraw his bill that would have sold off 3.3 million acres of public lands to help balance the budget, yeah, that really was a sea change. And you saw the Outdoor Industry Association move its show out of Salt Lake City because of the bad Utah politics on public lands. Yeah. So we really saw, I think, the momentum has swung back in favor of public lands. And I think that's reflected in this vote, which is, you know, you, you can't do much better than 92 to 8. I mean, you could you know, do a resolution on you know, motherhood and apple pie that probably wouldn't pass by that margin. Who? Yeah, like a bill says, like, we love motherhood and apple pie. Yeah, yeah. no, forget that. Yeah. <laughs> do we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer cherry pie. Yeah. Do, uh, who, within, uh, who within the administration, who within the Trump administration is, uh, who's influential there? You know, I mean, he, uh, si- like, he signs it, right? Yeah, he signs it. Yeah. So I think, you know, the Secretary of Interior, clearly this is mostly an interior-related bill. Okay, I got you. Yeah, So, so that's, well. who, that's who's weighing in on that's yeah. who has That's who has the president's ear yeah, around. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Dave Pernart has been pretty darn reasonable on most of these issues. I mean, he's been great on access issues. He's been, you know, sort of approachable on, you know, land management issues. So I think he recognized that this was not only was it, there's no point in vetoing this. You're going to get crushed on an override. Yeah. But it also is good politics and it makes sense and it's not draconian in any way. Yeah. And you and, got you got yeah. TRCP worked hard on this. Oh, yeah. No, and, but not just us. I mean, tons of groups. Yeah. Wildlife Federation, BHA, you know, pretty much everybody supported this. I mean, I don't think anybody in our community opposed this. And because another provision that was in this overall bill was clarifying that public lands are open for hunting and fishing unless they're specifically closed through an open and transparent process. And that was really an effort to push back on some of the things the animal rights community had attacked like they did in Michigan a few years ago. You know, the, on Huron, I think, National Forest, you know, sort of trying to get hunting shut down there. Oh, uh, really? At that time, it was, yeah. And How was, did I miss that? Yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember if it was a Huron or wherever. But at that time, it, they got somebody who didn't like the noise of gunfire to try to shut down an area. And it really was oh, a, sort of yeah, a backdoor yeah. that's move. A, that's an interesting approach. Animal rights community to go in and try to shut down public lands. And so this is, you know, listen, there are some public lands that make sense to shut down, you know, near campgrounds, you know, other things like that. But there ought to be a public and transparent process to shut those down. Yeah, I mean, you see buffers like there's, you know, you go to river access sites and it'll say no discharge of firearms. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, so I mean, and, but there ought to be just a thoughtful process to close areas off, not because you know it may, you know, somebody may hear a gunshot a few miles away. Yeah. So anyway, that did this. So even the right side of the community that typically does not weigh in on wilderness and wild and scenic rivers, you know, they were enthusiastically in support of this because of that, because they saw that as taking away one of these attacks on hunting and fishing on public lands. Do you ever see, um, do you ever see a situation where people within the animal rights movement, um, will like, take this thing, for instance, S forty seven, where it's obviously doing a, it, it's beneficial to wildlife, is beneficial to habitat preservation. Do you ever see a situation where they'll sabotage the movement of something that, on the whole, is good for wildlife because it enables harvest of wildlife? Like, do you ever see it become like a real, actual problem? Sure. I mean, they oppose that provision, that open, less closed provision, for years, but when it's tacked in with. You know, a hundred other provisions. That's what I'm saying. What do they do then? Then they, you know, swallow their pride and they support the overall package. Okay. And listen, because I mean, it's all in all a win, even though there's a law, even though yeah. there's a loss for them in there. Exactly. And it may, maybe some of the. I mean, I didn't follow what 
Peta's position was on. Yeah, this but I mean the, the that, reasonable but, players who are yeah. actually out there. Right. I mean, again, trying to get things. Nobody done. gets everything they want in one of these packages, which is why it passes by such a large margin, because it's sort of the the fringe elements on either side get knocked out, and you know, so something like this makes a ton of sense, and I think this is the way you're going to see it again. My guess is that early this year, you know, Lisa Murkowski is going to put together an energy package, which would really be a public lands package too, because there'll be an assortment of these smaller bills, you know, that are you know, ready to go. They're non-controversial, and you know, before you get into the election year gridlock, you know, this is another you know, probably I think it's a good chance we'll get another package that moves through. We've been trying to get Lisa Murkowski on the show without any luck. She's a tough one to pin down. Yeah. That's why I want to get her on the show. Yeah, and she, you know, being from Alaska, I mean, I feel like she she like would definitely have a lot of opinions. She would. I would yeah. love. Yeah, I'd love to ask her some questions. Yeah. Okay, break down the farm bill for me, man. No, I like. I think I feel like a lot of people know there is such thing as a farm bill, but they don't really under, understand it. Well, I, one thing I guess to point out that makes things uh, tough on the education side of things is like we need these certain things within the farm bill to pass, but you're talking about the farm bill and, or the transportation mm-hmm. bill or the energy bill and uh, people get really confused. So it's hard to be like, no, no, th- this these sportsmen's issues are buried within this thing, but it is the transportation, like the whole package. Yeah. Right? It's just I mean, the farm bill is like, thing. let's say if the farm bill is composed of 100 things, two, two are directly apply to sportsmen or I don't know what the ratio is. Well, yeah, and there's plenty Uh-oh. of people out there, right, who are like, I don't have a farm. Yeah, so I'll tell you what the, <laughs> tell you what the ratios are here. So we have, you know, basically 900 million acres in the United States are in, you know, farm or commercial forestry production. Tell me again. 900 million acres. So that's about 40% of the overall land mass of the U.S. Yeah. is in, you know, it basically is, you could largely call it in farm. And of that, about 140 million acres are enrolled in Farm Bill conservation programs, so that's about a thirty. Um, back, back, I gotta, mm-hmm. I gotta hear these numbers again. Okay. What's the number? How many acres of federally managed public lands we have? Like national forests, national parks, refuges. I think the number I see is six hundred forty million. Okay, and how many acres of land again are are in ag production? About nine hundred million. Okay, and of those, of those, about one hundred and forty million acres are enrolled in farm bill conservation programs. Okay, so and now, what does put, that mean? Put that in context. You know, that's the size. Pri- of these cal- are privately held lands. Privately held lands enrolled in, you know, basically the farm bill, the conservation side of the farm bill, which is the single largest, you know, from a dollar standpoint, conservation program in the United States. I mean, it's $30 billion. And, you know, so that's, but in the broad scheme of things, the overall farm bill is 800 plus billion. So it's a relatively like 7%, I think, you know, overall, I mean, you can add it up different ways. But a relatively small portion of the overall farm bill is conservation. The great majority of it is things like food stamps, you know, the nutrition program. Oh, that's part of the farm bill. Yeah. And that was a you know, How deal often do they need to haggle over the farm bill? Every five years. And it was a deal that was cut a long time ago, you know, basically to get urban members and rural members to support something. And the not food fight. stamp program is in the farm bill. Yeah. Huh. And I so like maybe yeah, I knew that and forgot it. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, but when you have a farm bill, that's what all the debate's around. It's around, you know, food stamp eligibility requirements and, you know, dollar Mm. figures and things like that. But that was a very intentional deal that Congress So they're not just sitting around arguing about pheasant habitat. No, no, that's, uh, (laughs) I mean, there are some of that. We argue about pheasant habitat, but in the big scheme of things, we're, you know, decimal dust in the overall argument. Which makes it vulnerable. Well, it does, but I mean, remember, this is the... 
you know, this reason we able to get a farm bill passed is you have that weird coalition between urban, inner city, you know, the Black Caucus, you know, folks like that that really want to make sure they have, you know, and back in the 70s, when this all started, there was a real nutrition problem in this country. And so the farm, you know, the food stamp program at that time was really created to address a really particular need in this country. But at the same time, they realized that this also helped farmers who wanted to have basically some guaranteed markets within the country of food. So that was how the whole deal got created in the first place, was urban members coming together with rural members to create a farm bill that was good for farmers and it was good for the inner cities. Yeah. And that coalition has stayed pretty strong. I mean, it's been frayed a little bit more in recent years, but you know, that's the reason we're able to get a farm bill passed. Now, so go back to your original question in terms of what does that look like? So of that $30 billion, it's broken out into several. Hunt, or, remind mm-hmm. me again, the $30 billion, that in your, how do you characterize that chunk of the? So that is what we call the conservation program of the farm bill. That's title okay. two. So, so the, the, the whole thing with all the, everything involved is $800 yep. billion. Yep, exactly. Which is, that's real money. That's real money. <laughs> That is real and money. Thirty billion. You'd be doing is right. the conservation part of it. Correct. So we're talking about the thirty billion dollar piece of pie. Thirty billion dollars, and yeah. and unlike other you know sort of environmental legislation, the farm bill is one hundred percent voluntary. So this is creating incentives on private lands to do the right thing for you know soil, for water, for fish and wildlife. And there are a couple of there are two different ways you can do that. I mean, there is the essentially what they call the land retirement programs, like the conservation reserve program where you pay a landowner to set aside, you know, basically the most marginal land on his or her farm and manage it for conservation, you know, for seeing you get better water quality, you get better wildlife habitat, and the farmer gets guaranteed income for the course of that that contract, which is typically 10 to 15 years. So right now, Conservation Reserve Program, there are about 22 million acres that are currently enrolled in that program. Yeah, if if you're a hunter and you keep your ears open, you will at some point in your life hear someone say, let's go hit that CRP field. Exactly. And yeah. that, that's what we're talking about. Right. And if you're I knew the, that line. Yep. I knew the hitting the CRP field line long before I knew what in the world that meant. Yeah. And it's a great program. I mean, it's, it's expensive, but it serves multiple benefits. I mean, it helps. When it was originally created back in the 1980s, it was during the farm crisis. And it really, it was created as a price support mechanism for farmers, a way to pay them for not farming. Yeah, and and I feel just just jump in on this because uh, mm-hmm. this is, I feel like this is the thing that you you hear people gripe about so much, like people criticizing farm subsidies and pay oh it's all subsidies and paying farmers to do nothing. But I mean, you got to look at sort of world history and American history, and it starts making a lot more sense. I mean, millions of people starved to death during World War II. Yep. Yeah, we, had, we, had, we had real hunger crisis in the 70s. And it's like if markets collapse in some way, some global thing causes markets to collapse, do you really want to just have it be that everyone that has a farm that can't get through that period that they sell the land right. or turn it into a golf course or subdivide it or whatever the hell? Or do you give them some way that, that, you, can, that, that you can allow people to hang on to land, keep it in ag, and be ready for the next time there's a global crisis. Exactly. Because you can't expect people to go, like, break ground and start, start a farm because we have a impending famine. Yep. It's like they got to be ready to roll. Right. But you no. hear people – I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are abuses. Like, everything – like, you can talk about any government program, and if you focus on the abuses, it would be the same way as me saying, hunters suck 
because some people are poachers. Mm-hmm. It's like, of course there are abuses, but man, I hear a lot of people dogging on the yeah, subsidy yeah. program. It's like you're kind of like doing it without really thinking about the implications of if, if farmers all had to go bankrupt every time something happened. And this is very different than back in the 1980s. In the 1980s, when it was you basically just were paying farmers not to farm. Now, you know, CRP and the other wildlife programs, conservation programs have been much more refined. And so they're, you know, geared toward really actually helping things like water quality, you know, soil quality, fish and wildlife. There are incentives. So if you enter your land, Cal, into you know, a CRP, you're also going to get some incentives from the federal government to go and you know, convert, put in pollinator habitat. And so it's way more targeted and strategic and beneficial for the public at large than it was in the old days. And you know, obviously pollinator habitat you know, sounds goofy. But it's not incre- to me. <laughs> incredibly important. Incredibly important. If you like value, you know, agriculture, flowers, you know, anything, and uh, we've been losing it. And this is a way to encourage bringing a lot of that back. You know, monarch butterflies are the poster child for you know loss of pollinator habitat. So I think that you know we've seen a big change of it. You have CRP. You have the conservation stewardship program. Uh, you have the environmental quality and habitat program. Equip. Uh, you know, and equip. Can we, is, can we touch on the bugs a little bit more? Uh-huh, pollinators. Yeah. yeah. If you're seeing like in areas in intensely uh, tilled lands and intensely in lands with a lot of intense use of herbicides and pesticides, and you're seeing like radical reductions in insect life, um, you got to wake up to the reality that like that goes beyond bugs. Mm-hmm. And maybe you like to hunt turkeys. A turkey poult, seventy percent of its diet is animal matter, bugs. Yep. It's like you can't act like you're going to strip out. It's like, oh, it's just bugs. Who cares? It's like, dude, you can't act like you're going to strip that out and the, the life as you know it is going to continue to look the same. You can't, like, yep. knock chunks of ecology out and act like it doesn't have it. So when people, if someone were to roll their eyes about pollinator habitat, I'd be like, what, you don't like turkeys? Yep. Or whatever. You know what I mean? you. It's like, it's essential stuff, man. No, and it's, it's great. And it's not just even turkey. I mean, you know, Bob White quail. It's, you know, you name it, you know, and it's important for it. And that diversity is, you know, just, you know, good for ecological reasons, period. Things we don't understand. Right, exactly. And it's beautiful. So, you know, I think there are a whole bunch of benefits. So I think that in the days when you, know, you could justly criticize some of the farm programs as just straight subsidies with little public benefit other than keeping a farmer afloat, I think it's very different today. I mean, these programs have been refined, have been improved, and I think you're seeing, you know, way broader benefits, which is, makes it frustrating when we have a sort of a dwindling CRP like we're seeing right now. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to, okay? It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. 
Terms and conditions apply. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Yeah, that's the part I kind of wanted to get to that because mm-hmm. when we were at the TRCP board meeting, there was some talk about um, money was available for farmers to enroll in CRP, but it wasn't flowing. Correct. So they they were there were people who were, were farmers were put in a tough spot because one hand they wanted to enroll but they couldn't get the the compensation. Yep. And we're going to be put into a tough spot where they're going to have to try to do something to figure it out. And it was kind of screwing farmers. So CRP reached its peak. I think it was in 2007, which is about 37 million acres enrolled in that program. And that there was a direct correlation between you know, low you know, commodity prices and enrollment in programs like CRP. Because when you're not making money off of growing corn or soybeans or alfalfa or whatever it might be, then CRP looks a whole lot better. During the you know, sort of go-go years of the 2010s to you know, 2017, you know, when you had $7 corn, things like that, you saw a bunch of land move out of CRP and other conservation Like that programs. contract would expire and it would go into grain production because they're, they're going to make more money doing grain. some of them would just break a contract and get the penalty and just go straight into gotcha. it. Gotcha. Yeah. So over that time period, we lost about 6 million acres out of CRP. Or excuse me, not 6 million acres of grassland and prairie land and you know, pasture land got converted to row crops. 
And then grain prices were through the roof. Grain prices were through the roof. Now you have the exact opposite now. So when the previous farm bill was done back in 2014. What made grain prices shoot through the roof? Uh, there were a variety of things. I mean, it's just, you know, we had huge good weather year. I mean, we had huge export markets. So I think that was when coinciding with like bad you know, Russian wheat crops and gotcha. things like that. You also had, you know, sort of the go-go years, the ethanol subsidies. So that was driving production of corn. Okay. Yeah, it was, you know, so that was part of it. It was just a really good time to be a farmer. Yeah. And it was not a great time to be a conservationist because all this land was getting moved out and converted to row crops. Now, all of a sudden, you know, we have, you know, trade wars and, you know, cr- prices are through the floor and there's huge demand to get, move land into CRP and other conservation programs at a minimum just to stabilize farm income you know, to weather this storm because eventually you know, prices are going to stabilize again. Yeah, because they're, they're afraid of farmers, if, if they're not able to do CRP, they're going to maybe be in a situation where they're further contributing to flooding the market with grain and, yeah. and keeping prices down. Or just, I mean, listen, I mean, to put a, you know, record suicides out in farm country right now, record bankruptcies. I mean, it is, is a true crisis right now. And instead of giving them a $30 billion bailout, which is what we've done to address you know, some of the impacts of the trade war, you know, we ought to be moving a buttload of land into conservation where they're getting payments, which are also doing public good at the same time. Yeah, like, get, like where the taxpayers are getting more out of it. Right. So in the 2018 Farm Bill that we passed, which was a good farm bill, you know, again, $30 billion, you know, and sort of made improvements to the 2014 Farm Bill, changed the conservation programs a lot. It got rid of a bunch of them, consolidated them, streamlined them, created a couple of new ones like the Regional Conservation Partnership Program. This most recent Farm Bill didn't make any drastic changes like that, but really improved upon what we did in 2014. And, you know, among other things, it expanded CRP, which had been down to 24 million acres in the 2014 Farm Bill because demand was so low. It kicked that back out to 27 million acres because demand is much higher now. Can you tell me the two numbers again? 24 in the previous farm bill and the most recent one, 27. Okay. Now, to make that budget neutral, they made it a little bit less profitable for farmers. They reduced the rental rate a little bit. They reduced the incentive payments a little bit. But it, overall, the end of the so day— So they're making the same spend and getting three more million acres yeah, in CRP. Exactly. And, and are I, those people getting their money now? No. So just in December, for the first time in four years, they've done a sign-up for CRP which is just insane because you're having, you know, acres expire, you have huge men in farm country, but we just couldn't get these guys to do a new sign up. So finally, these guys, Department of Agriculture, Farm Service Agency. Because of what reason? All right. So, you know, so Farm Bill is mandatory funding. So it doesn't have to be appropriated every year. So this is essentially... You know, something that is, you know, done and they don't worry about it. So it's not the vagaries of annual appropriations like land and water conservation fund. I mean, obviously, we want to get LWCF off budget for the same reasons. So you're stable and money's coming in. We know what it's going to be. But farm bill programs are truly off budget. So these are mandatory programs. However, if you don't spend the money, like you go and they look, OMB will look over a few years and say, geez, you haven't even spent, you know, a third of this money or two years from the end. We're going to basically cut a bunch of your money away. So the the devious, the cynical of those among us, like me, who's been in D.C. a long time, feels that this has been basically a backhanded way to reduce the baseline. So in other words, to not spend the money that Congress expected them to spend and then have OMB say, well, geez, you're not spending the money, so we're going to reduce that overall amount. And, and who's OMB? Office of Management and Budget. And uh, – and there was, you know, there was some indications they didn't like the original farm bill. They thought it was too expensive. 
Okay. And so this would be basically a backdoor way of not implementing it the way Congress intended it to be implemented. And at the same time, lose that baseline so it makes it less spendy for the federal government. It doesn't show you're running quite as big a deficit as you're doing it. But at the same time, it's not providing the benefits on the ground that Congress intended. So finally, in December, they announced a new sign-up. So if anybody's listening and has friends in farm country, tell them to go to the Farm Service Agency, get signed up for CRP. Doug Dern, get down there. Get down there, Doug. In fact, he's at the front of the line. <laughs> um, and if you folks want to learn more about it, then go to – we have a website called crpworks.org. Uh, okay. So you can go there and learn more about the program in general. But what we're expecting is not going to be a great sign-up because they lowered incentive payments significantly. So in other words, instead of that, the you know, payments for going and putting in pollinator habitat, it used to be about 40%. Now in this new sign-up, it's down to about 5%, which is, you know, just, it really does not that help. So they also moved a bunch of the continuous funding, which is way more expensive, which is non-competitive. And that's where you do things like, you know, a lot of the, you know, like sage grouse, you know, restoration work being done on the farm bill is in these continuous programs. A lot of the Bob White, you know, restoration, longleaf pine restoration is being done you know, under this continuous program that are much longer term. But they're also more expensive. And, you know, but a lot of those wildlife programs that had always been in these long-term programs now getting moved into the general sign-up, which makes them much cheaper. So the folks like the landowners will not get the same amount of money for them. So we're going to think, think that while we should be getting about 8 million acres that could get signed up, I mean, I think we'll be lucky to see, you know, 6 million. Just because An increase as, of 6 million. Yeah. So right now there are 22 million acres enrolled. Yeah. There are about another you know, six or eight million that are basically expiring in the next year. So there is a, and the cap is 27 million acres. So there's a lot of room to add acres and God knows farm country needs it right now, but we're not going to see that. We're going to see, yeah, we're going to see some acres added, probably about 6 million acres may kick it up to, you know, from 22, you know, up a decent amount, but given what's expiring, it's not going to come close to that cap of 27 million acres. Yeah. Are there CRP and, lands in Hawaii, for instance? Like, where where is all this stuff? Um, not that I know of, but here I've got actually a map on my computer, which I'll I'll show you when. But yeah, you got to got to give these folks, you know, the value of their time and gas. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And if if they're going to go spend their time and gas, they're going to look for a better return. Yep. No, that's exactly right. So anyway, we're going to be disappointed with the sign-up that's going, currently going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's better than nothing. We're thrilled they finally got a sign-up out. But, you know, long-term, you know, we're going to have to, you know, have a serious discussion between Congress and the administration about implementing this program the way it's intended. Yeah, you know, we'll be organizing comments on behalf of the broader— Like the administration has been— uh, dra- like, Dragging its feet dra- on not, not sort of exercising the will of the people correct. in terms of— And, I mean, part of the problem here is, too, is this is the one conservation program that is administered by the Farm Service Agency and not NRCS. And National Resource Conservation Service, they wake up every day and think about conservation on farmland. Mm-hmm. Farm Service Agency doesn't. So and they look at the big thing, things to do today. You know, this is down toward the bottom. Gotcha. I and, mean, Steve's earlier point is the one that I, it's the development threat. You know, I mean, sure. farmers and ranchers, they do what they do not because they have to. It, there's, that's their life. I mean, it's, it's the way they choose to spend their lives. And eventually, they're going to get it in a point where it's like, man, it's not worth the hassle. And you're in a place like the Gallatin Valley here, or my mom's place there outside of Billings, where it's, let's just cut this sucker up and get a paycheck and and move to Hawaii. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's the real threat long term. If you drag your feet on this implementation, there's huge ripple effects through you know, farm country. We'd much rather have the argument of CRP or row crop versus CRP or housing development. Yep. Because once it's in housing, it's not coming back to... Yeah, it's not coming out. Hey, uh, Phil, we're, we're going to move on to... Um... So I'm just giving oh, you, Steve, a there's a map of where... Uh, Hotbed CRP. Hotbed of CRP and Upper Midwest, Great Plains. Yep. Boy, things get complicated when you move down there towards Florida. A lot Florida. of stuff in the Upper Midwest and Great Plains and the Columbia. Yep. Columbia drainage. Uh, hey, Phil, you know, that, you know that noise Cal uses in Cal's Week in Review where it goes... Whoosh. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Put that uh, noise in right Got now. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Access. Yeah. 2019, thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up. Yeah, again, I you're think... Kind of far, you're kind of thumbs down in Farm Bill. Yeah, I mean, I think thumbs down in Farm Bill. Um, just Two thumbs been, down? Uh, one and a half. So one thumb is... One thumb is sideways. One's down. down. Okay. Yeah. Hit me two thumbs on... Or give me both your thumbs on access. Good. Wit's got two thumbs up. Two thumbs up on access. Okay. So we've been, you know, honestly, Dave Bernhardt and the Interior Department have been really good on this issue. So he's been, you know, sort of done a bunch of things in terms of opening up hunting and fishing on refuges and places, streamlining regs. I mean, we had a situation in the past where... You may have a refuge someplace that had totally different regs than the state, which may make sense, but it may not make sense, but it made it really confusing for hunters. And so a lot of that has been streamlined. They've also, you know, there are certain refuges and other public lands that got closed for no particular reason, and those all got reevaluated and a bunch got reopened. So that's good. Uh, perhaps the most important thing he's done on the access front is dealing with, you know, what we call, you know, disposable lands for BLM. Mm -hmm. So under the original FLIPMA, which is the Federal Land Management Policy Act, which essentially governs BLM management, they're required to, every time they re review, uh, renew a resource management plan, an RMP, look at areas that don't make sense for them to hold on to and are suitable for disposal. Give me an example of what that would look like. Yeah, well, let's say they have, they have a you know a plot inside the city limits of Las Vegas that happens to still be BLM land. Just some weed plot laying there. Yeah, I mean, just an historical anomaly. You know, maybe it was part of a railroad grant or something. You know, long term ago. Okay. And uh, but it. But there's there. some guy that hunts jackrabbits out there. There could be. <laughs> so, but anyway, there and there probably are you know a variety of you know federal lands out there that make sense to be you know swapped or disposed of, and that's fine. And, and honestly, you know, and Jason, explain Chaffetz, a land swap real quick. So let's say you have a you know a parcel that. You know, is in the city limits of Las Vegas, and you know the city really wants that to expand the strip. I mean, just to use a hypothetical. Let's no say a hospital. I like it. It's a uh, hospital. Hospital. Okay, then they could enter into say, okay, fine. We have we the city of Las Vegas has this parcel way outside of town, adjacent to a national forest. We'll swap it to you in exchange for this piece in town. Your national forest gets bigger. Our hospital gets bigger. Right. And it's a win-win for everybody. Okay. Now, there's some rules in place about the swaps have to be you know, generally you know, the same value, things like that. Yeah, so people don't but, come in and manipulate yeah. it. And, but there's, yeah. it makes perfectly good sense to do things like that. And that's how we deal with a lot of in-holdings in places or through things like land swaps. But you know, the part of the problem was in the original FLIPMA or bill when it talked about looking at land suitable for disposal. It you know, basically talked about lands were difficult to manage, isolated. It didn't talk anything about you know, recreational access. So you have a situation where you may have a section, you know, 648, 640 acres of BLM land someplace, nowhere near other BLM lands, but it may be adjoining you know, state lands or a national forest. Now, in the old days, BLM would automatically put that parcel on the disposal list because it was isolated, didn't make, it was hard to manage, 
didn't make sense in terms of big picture agency management. Mm -hmm. But so what we got Dave Bernhardt to do was to change the rules and he issued a secretary order on this 3373 that when you know the agency comes up and looks at areas suitable for disposal, if it's important for recreation, including hunting and fishing, it's off the list. Got you. So it is again, and this is a direct result of some of that Onyx work we've done, you know, that identifies these sort of landlocked public lands. Because if you're disposing of some of these isolated parcels, you're impacting way more than that one or that half section that may be out there. And that's uh, well, Eric Siegfried of Onyx and I hunted a chunk this year that is so prime, so prime for disposal or land swap because it's surrounded by. We're not talking Mon kettle ranchers out in eastern Montana. We're, we're like big, big money. Um, and, you know, it's corporate holding type of situation. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're not in it for the cattle. And uh, this chunk of ground that we hunted is great recreational value. Um, but it's not something the BLM could even get in and manage if it if the landowner around it decided that they didn't want them to. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah, so wake up in hot sweats over something like that because sure. it has and tremendous wildlife you, value. You, you just think about like the, the Fuhrer, the, the Wilkes brothers in Idaho and now Montana. And, you know, obviously they're going to, if you know, they may have some lies, parcels that make sense to trade to the federal government. But, you know, their exchange may be, you know, that one section which that allows the public to get to that national forest behind them. And if you get rid of that and make that private, then essentially you privatize all that elk habitat behind it. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can imagine the manipulations yeah. that go right. on. Yeah. And so now with that secretary order, it basically prohibits BLM from doing that kind of stuff, which is great. And you know, I, you know, a lot of credit to you know Bernhardt and Interior for doing that one. Now I say on the, also on the access front, the fact that we got permanent reauthorization LWCF, huge win for access. Yeah, uh, you know, we now have again another result of this Onyx project. Yeah, which we is went, Bernhard acting or did he get? Did, did, he's he's permanent. So he he did get he got confirmed. Okay. Yeah, but well, uh, what? Yeah, what about the acting director of the BLM? Well, that's a whole separate story. Let's yeah, hold, let's hold off on that one. The WPP. Yeah, so we'll hold off on that one because okay. yeah, there's still more to talk about here with the access stuff. Yeah, but you know another thing we were doing the project with Onyx. What we realized is that the agencies often have no idea where they have legal accesses. So they may have, it may be, you know, an access easement that was granted 40 years ago, you know, that's in the basement of some, you know, BLM or Forest Service office someplace in a cardboard file box. And, you know, what Eric and the company found was that, you know, there was a huge need to get that information digitized and out in the public sphere because it makes it very hard for you or me or anybody to know really where legal access are, routes are now. So we have a bill that's being going to get dropped in Congress soon that would give the agencies the money to go in and expedite, you know, digitization of all these access areas. And, you know, that's something I testified in Congress on, you know, last year about the need to do this because what the agencies told us was that, you know, if, we, if we're left to ourselves under current time frame, it'll probably take us 20 years to get this stuff all digitized. Yeah. And that's just ridiculous. How often do you testify in front of Congress? So TRCP in 2019 testified five times. I personally... Did three, I think. Mm -hmm. Is it fun? I mean, if you sort of you know, know your stuff, and for us, it's not bad. I mean, they're they're no hostile. They don't you know. like bust your balls real no, bad. No, like I just did. You know, right in December, I did a CWD 
you know, on the Senate side, you know, talked about that with the you know, Senate Environment Committee, and it was super positive. I mean, you know, they had good questions. They had done their homework. You know, everyone from, you know, you know, Barrasso from you know, Wyoming to Gillibrand from New York. They don't roll their eyes and, and go, oh, God, it's the guy who likes to be outside and nope. animals and nope, stuff. No, nope. no, I mean, again, this is, in the weird way, this is one of those few issues that actually brings folks together in Congress. And I'm not just saying CWD. I'm saying that in conservation, hunting and fishing yeah. broadly. And I remember right after the election when Trump got elected, you know, Martin Heinrich came and talked to our policy council, which is the sort of collection of all the NGOs that are part of the partnership. And he said... Almost nothing is going to happen in Congress these next four years that's positive other than what's in your space. So he says, you guys have an unbelievable opportunity. Don't waste it. And, you know, I think we've taken, you know, his advice on that one. And we've been pretty aggressive in asking for things and honestly been getting most of what we've been asking for. That's great. Yeah. So anyway, on the access thing, I think that's been, you know, pretty much, you know, a good story. Because yeah. no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you want to win. Right. If everything else is such a pain in the neck and not likely to get a win. Well, and plus, you just want to show you can govern mm-hmm. and uh, and do something that's important for your constituents. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Sierra Club member or a Safari Club member. I mean, these are things that you know, folks can agree on. Uh, in our notes here, we have VPA HIP and 3373. Yeah, so v- 3373 is that secretary order I just mentioned you okay. know, from Dave Bernhardt. Yep. VPA HIP is going back to the farm bills. Yeah, we got a program in the 2008 Farm Bill. Yeah, at that time it was known as Open Fields, but the technical you know, name was the Voluntary Public Access Habitat Incentives Program. Yep. So this was a program that we just got expanded to $50 million annually, which are competitive grants to states to negotiate walk-in easements essentially with private landowners. Oh, okay. So you have you know, a lot of- So it's of, actual money they can use. Right. And yeah. it's, uh, Can they know, roll it into their existing programs? You bet, absolutely. Okay, good. Yeah. So they don't need to start some whole new damn thing. No, but part yeah. of the cool thing about the VPA HIP program is that you have states like Connecticut, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania that have created walk-in programs because all of a sudden now there's a source of federal funding. Oh, really? And you know, again, and they can and, supplement it with their own ways if they, if possible. Right, exactly. And this has really started back in I think Kansas was the first state that really did this aggressively. Back when Steve Williams, who's you know then became Fish and Wildlife Service director under George W. Bush, but it now runs Wildlife Management Institute. But when he was fishing game director in Kansas, they created this walk-in program, you know, basically to get people out there, you know, pheasant hunting and upland bird hunting. And it became so popular, counties were giving the states grants really? to create walk-in programs yeah. in those areas. Uh, real quick, what Witt's talking about is pro, and you, you know, depending where you are, your state has one or needs one. It's programs where landowners are compensated to get financial compensation um, to allow people public access to hunt and fish on their lands. And they, these programs tend to um, are oftentimes uh, hunting programs funded through hunting or access programs funded through hunting and fishing. Like we have to be sitting in Montana right now in Montana. Um, it's certain corners of license revenue fund the public access program. So it's not like you're going, you know, it's an internal thing. It's not like you're going out and taxing everyone on the landscape to allow hunting. It's something that 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 hunters, anglers are doing, you know, kind of for themselves through their agencies, through their state agencies yep. or with federal help. And the cool thing about the VPA HIP program is it is also tied to conservation. So you don't have the risk of, you know, some dude, you know, getting paid to open up his row crops, you know, to hunting and fishing where there's, you know, no wildlife. So to the extent that that, pro- that land has already entered into other conservation programs, 
CRP, CSP, you know, conservation easements, whatever it might be, you know, they score higher. So oh, really? Yeah, okay. So, there's so the more, quality of the habitat. The quality of the habitat is going to be much better in these types of programs. The other thing that's is good about this is it takes liability away from the private landowner. So if, you know, Cal trips and breaks his leg in a ditch, you know, he's not going to sue the landowner. The state assumes that liability. So they will defend, you know, that right. Which may I'll help you out, Cal. Yeah. Not financially, but I mean... Just like a shoulder to yeah. limp out of the field yeah. on? <laughs> Loan you a crutch. Yeah. Uh, but the reason a, a county would support this program, right, is like, I, I can't tell you how many counties, little townships we go through where it's, it's very obvious the only money that's coming in is from recreation, whether that is hunting, fishing, floating. Yeah, like it's, that's it's, the, it's the local motel. It's the local diner. I mean, gas station. All these yeah. folks are benefiting from this. And that's why you fly into Sioux Falls in November and the big banner you see as you leave the airport is welcome hunters. Yeah. Because it's such an economic driver. You're at the gas in. station too. Yeah. Yeah, you roll the, into the big a big orange <laughs> the big orange bush sign. Yep, exactly. <laughs> roll good. into a gas station with the meat eater crew, they're gonna get hurt on snacks. I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> uh Phil, play the 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 the, the noise. How do you describe that noise? Uh, I have it labeled as a swish in my no, library. No, I like it. Yeah, the swish. Okay, uh, CWD. Thumbs up. Th- I mean, it's thumbs down. Thumbs down. Thumbs down. It, it, it's thumbs down in two ways. It's thumbs down. I'm, I'm guessing. The primary way it's thumbs down is it's spreading. Yes. More counties all the time. I mean, there's more testing, revealing more spread. Yes. How else is it thumbs down? The unwillingness of most politicians to accept this is a real issue and deal with it. Why are they not scared shitless about what this would mean for egg? They ought to be. So Everybody's talking about like guys like me are like, well, what if? How horrible would it be? What if a human got CWD? But why, why is the, the livestock industry not considering what's going to happen if CWD spreads into sheep or cattle? Even Dude, it'd be that. like an it'd be like an egg apocalypse. Well, let's let's take it another step further. Let's say Norway is already banning the import of agricultural products from CWD positive areas, because it's trying to control its CWD outbreak in reindeer in Norway. So, you know, how long is it until the EU bans agricultural imports from CWD positive areas? And as twenty six states right now have it, that's a lot of CWD positive areas in ag country. And, you know, and so, they just aren't paying, they're not paying attention. So, I mean, listen, I mean, it's, it's improving. They were, we did, I think, three hearings this year in the House on CWD. So we're definitely making some progress in the sense of getting people to be aware of this. You know, Mark Vesey, who's a congressman from Texas, around that Fort Worth area, who's going to get our big award this spring. You know, he went to the floor in the ag, during the appropriations. Don't just say debate. our big award. Explain. TRCP honors one Democrat, one Republican, somebody from the private sector every year. And it's a big fundraiser in April. Steve got the private sector award a few years ago. Uh, this year, you know, the you know, congressional honorees are you know, Mark Vesey um, from Texas and Garrett Graves, Republican from Louisiana. But Mark Vesey went to the floor during the Ag Appropriations Bill and offered an amendment to add $15 million to go to state fishing game agencies to help with surveillance and testing, which okay. is the first thing you need to do to get on top of CWD. And that was unanimously adopted. Okay. So that comes over to the Senate, which is great. And uh, then, you know, the Senate Ag Appropriations Committee cuts that down to $5 million, of which half went to state, vet, state agriculture departments for the captive service industry. So for them to do testing? Who knows? 
maybe do testing. I don't know. I mean, we have no control. Maybe over to that try money. to breed yet a bigger buck. Well, that's yeah. Who knows what it's going to be? Maybe it's maybe it's going to be used for good things. But given our skepticism of USDA and how they've dealt with CWD, yeah, we have very little hope. They seems like the one. Well. If, if you told me that, let's say there's two boxes. Let's say I'm on a game show and there's two boxes and and behind each box is like a behind one box is a car, mm-hmm. brand new truck, and one box says CWD. Um, spreads to livestock, and one box says CWD spreads to humans. And if I got the answer right, I'd get the truck. You tracking me? Yeah, I would absolutely be the livestock one. Yeah, no, it's much more. They got four legs, right? Yeah, they're eating the the same grass. (laughs) You know, all the rest. Man, you think that I don't know why? Like, so see, that's one of the things that messes me about CWD. Is I look and I'm like. What am I missing? If you look I'm, at, I'm scared shitless, but if those people aren't scared, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I mean, listen, I mean, you know, there is a cottage industry out there of folks who are basically saying this is a hoax, not to be believed, and nothing but, but, wrong. But I, 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 I don't understand that part, though. I, I get it. Like, I, I get it. Listen, I try, I, not, I try not to be like groupthink, dude, on this stuff. Mm-hmm. How is it a hoax? What, like, when a deer dies, is laying there dead. And it's oh. got the symptomology, like, where's the hoax? Always been around, never oh. jumped to humans, nothing to worry about. Did not come out of the captive servant industry. Oh, yeah, the you know, captive deer farms have nothing to do with this spread. You know what's interesting? Dude, I hope they're right. Yeah, I agree with you. That's what I tell everybody. I'm like, man, I yeah, I, I hope I'm wrong on a lot of things every day. But uh, the disease transmission stuff, your research, it's funded by the USDA. Like, it all comes down, like... Uh, Iowa, Ohio, all these ag schools, the USDA is paying for a lot of that research. And it, yeah, it's, it's bizarre to me. Right, okay. I'm trying to, what's the late, okay, Texas, how long, when did Texas first get CWD? I don't know. It was a while ago, but it's done a much better job than other states of controlling it. Texas, the there was a recent case, I think in December. But I'm saying, I'm trying to I'm trying to better understand, and I got a pretty good understanding. Like a CWD denier used to be someone who didn't think it was a thing. Yes. Now a CWD denier is someone like this kind of stuff changes. Like being a Republican, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Being a Republican used to be you were like free trade. Now it doesn't. A CWD denier used to be that you didn't think it was a thing. Now it's morphed into it's a thing, but it doesn't matter. Correct. It's like what it means to deny it has moved. Yep. And so you, the current thing are people are there people who are saying that uh, a, a new state to get CWD. So are, are they saying that if you went to Texas twenty years ago and did all the monitoring, you would have found it? Like it's always been there. Like it, what exactly? I, I mean, I'm, I don't want to try to get inside these guys' heads. Um, but I think that's probably going to say it. Yeah, it's been around. The, the, you even, could have you could have gone out and if you did all this testing that no, we're now doing, nobody was looking for it then. You know, yeah, like so what you know. That's the thing I think about. You hear like like Montana had its first case a year or two ago, and then all of a sudden you look like then there's like twenty some cases. But I'm like, yeah, well, all of a sudden they're monitoring every deer that comes out of certain areas, so you you see a big increase, um, and then now you at least have a baseline. But if you go from zero testing to testing, that launch is going to give you an increase. What matters is right. after five years of testing, what happens? And exactly. you, you, you know, you talk to uh, the, you know the beautiful and lovely Doug Dern, who's really out there in his area, is trying to be impactful about this, and he's able to point to what is test. Okay, we, we we're doing exhaustive testing, 
So we have multiple exhaustive testings to look at to see increase. But I, I just don't understand arguing that um, that it was always there because I'm like, where? Right. No, I agree. If it was always there, it would be everywhere. Yeah. So the, it's pretty clear, and you can look at the maps that show the sort of spread. And it's know, the it's, thing. This is the thing. Like it, it doesn't. It spreads like how shit spreads. Yes. Well, it spreads faster than shit spreads because you can throw a captive deer in the back of a truck and zip it across the country, and you know, on a greyhound bus, and you know, it's all of a sudden you know mixing with other deer and getting dropped off here and getting one picked up there. So yeah, know, but that, when, I was saying when you have a yeah. a new infection. You find a new infection, it spreads like in a way you would imagine it would spread. Yes. Like it's a, it's a circle that grows and grows and grows exactly. and grows. Exactly. And you, you may pop up other places, which, you know, you scratch your head about, but you know, that's the, the truck. And it's, listen, it's not just captive guys. It could be, you know, me throwing a you know, truck, a deer in the back of my pickup and driving a few states and addressing it and dumping it there. Well, if you listen to the guys that are really, I don't want to use the word, the, the, the people who are sounding the greatest alarm, um... Why is it not that you moved to hay bale? Yep. Yeah, yep, because so, the prions are in the hay bale. They're in the dirt. They're right. in the hay. They're, they're in anything the they touch. Yep. You can't kill them. Yeah. Why is it not moving to hay bale? I mean, they, they, you're exactly right. The frustrating part is, you know. Or an apple. I heard that recently. Members of Congress have staff, and they ought to be better informed on this. I mean, I had a you know, member you know, say to me, well, at the end of the day, we're just going to have to cook our meat longer. <laughs> yeah, that's and hilarious, was, man. And, you know, like, yeah, 17, I remember a guy 1700 saying, degrees. Yeah, 17, yeah, get up to 1700. Well done. Yeah. I think we should be throwing, you know what? If you're a guy, if you're a denier, whatever the hell that means these days, God bless you. Um, I feel like if you're a denier, you should be just saying, I feel like we should throw a lot of money at it so I could be proven right. Right. Dude, I, so I would, when I have an argument with someone, I would spend money to prove I'm right. So prove you're right. I yeah. think we should be throwing a lot of money at it because this is like a humongous deal. And totally it's not agree. a hunting deal, as you already no, said, right? It is, but it's like, on... that's my avenue into it. But oh, I would, absolutely. But if you care about, even if you care about uh, the livestock industry, and I do, I'm like, you know, uh, how's it going? Save a cow, stop a condo. What's that bumper sticker? Yeah, I like that. Cows, one. not condos, whatever. Yep. 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 Dude. Yeah. So anyway, that's been that's been really frustrating because we thought we had that 15 million, then the Senate cut it down to two and a half million, and you divide two and a half million up between 50 states, you know, that's you know just meaningless practically. <laughs> Isn't it hilarious to think about uh, when we talk about these amounts of money, then to think about like the wealth held by a person. Uh, oh yeah. You know, we're always talking about like Pittman Robertson money that um, uh, like Jeff Bezos could, Jeff Bezos could give that amount of money every year and not and not notice it. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> hilarious, man. Said, I was working with those guys in Sacramento, and the one guy turned to me, and he's like, yeah, you know, this issue, it's just not, you know, there's n- not enough private money to uh, fix this. And I was like, didn't you say the dude who owns this ranch owns three sports franchises? Right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I think he just doesn't want to pay for it all. Yeah. So anyway, right. what we got to do is we got to you know, get Congress to really step up in this issue. Now, they did kick forward you know, $1.72 million they're going to USGS for additional research into CWD, and that's good. And there's also a National Academy of Science study that's going to be going into looking at transmission vectors, look at the USDA herd certification program, which is a joke, and uh, other things. So there's going to be some positive stuff that comes out of this year, but just given the threat and how fast this thing is spreading, the notion that yeah, we're going to 
you know, kick out two and a half million dollars to state fish and wildlife agencies and expect that to make a difference is just incredibly frustrating. No, it is. You know, it's, uh, yeah. And it, when you wake up in a few years and you're watching news footage of people uh, using heavy equipment to dig massive trenches that are burning millions of sheep and cattle like you did from Ireland when mm-hmm. Mad, Mad Cow and Scrapey. Yeah. yeah. Then you'd be like, oh. Uh, <laughs> PR modernization. This is, I'm a little, like Cal, I'm a little, like, I like if I'm a little skeptical. Yeah, so I mean, we Thumbs heard, up, thumbs down. So thumbs you up. You love it. Oh, thumbs up. I think it's you great. love it. Cal, he's like thumbs even. No, I mean, listen, I mean, I originally had the same reaction you guys did. No, no, but, no, no, no. I'm just skeptical. Yeah. Not skeptical, right, I'm curious. So, so let me give a, a little background here so folks know what we're talking about. So Pittman-Robertson program is the excise tax that hunters, you know, pay, you know, on, you know, guns, ammo, archery equipment. That basically funds, you know, goes out to the states and funds conservation. There was an equivalent on the fish side, which was the Dingle Johnson program. Great then, name. Then got changed. The Great wallet, name wallet for bro. something. Dingle Johnson. Dingle Johnson. Names. And that's <laughs> the excise tax. The Pittman-Robertson passed, I think, in 1936 or 37. Uh, Dingle Johnson passed in 1950, I think. And so... Which kicks off more money, the fishing one or the, the, the fishing tackle one or the hunting equipment one? I think they're more or less even. Okay. There are a lot more fishermen, but the hunters buy a lot more, especially ammo. Yeah, but the fishermen, man, when they buy boat gas. They buy boat gas. It goes that, into there. Yeah, so you that go to marina it, and buy gas, yeah. that's hit by an excise tax. Yeah, exactly. For, yeah. So, but in the fish side, they can use a, states can use a small percentage of that for marketing, essentially to, for the R3, as we call it, you know, to recruit, retain, reactivate. You know, anglers. So that's why you see things like the Take Me Fishing program. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've done a similar one, reaching out to Hispanic community, the Vamos a Pescar program. My Spanish is terrible. I apologize. But those have really changed the decline in fishing numbers. How's your Spanish, Phil? Phil gives two thumbs down two in thumbs his Spanish. <laughs> I, I, I took two years of French, so yeah, three thumbs down if I could do yeah. So anyway, so that the uh, that Take Me Fishing you know, campaign has really reversed the decline in fishing numbers, and it's going back up. And you know, at a pretty aggressive rate, and it's reaching a lot of you know, his, you know, communities like Hispanic community that typically get you know left in the cracks you know by our you know hunting and fishing community. So, but because in the 1930s nobody could envision the need to advertise and recruit hunters because basically had, everybody was hunting at that point, either because it was during the depression they needed food. Or you know, post World War One, going into World War Two, you had a large yeah, yeah. The same, you had like I don't know, like a quarter as many Americans, but the same number of hundreds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so there was no idea that you, we actually would need to use some of this money for you know the marketing. But you know that's changed. And the the Fish and Wildlife surveys in the last you know two surveys over a five year period, hunting went from you know thirteen and a half million people to eleven and a half. I mean, and so you know the long term impacts implications of that on you know conservation funding are huge. So what we were wanting to do is and, just, and shit like fighting the animal rights movement. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So what we want to make sure is that we give the the states the same ability on the hunting side as they have on the fishing side to use a small amount of those funds for marketing. Now I had groups like you, know, Wildlife Society and Wildlife Federation argue that money is dedicated for habitat, you know, and yeah, other things like that. Pulls it a little it pulls off, it away. Pulls it off mission. But, and I would say we are in the death spiral. So, you know, if you want more money for habitat and good stuff coming out of PR, you better get more hunters into the game. And it's not yeah, going to happen Yeah, that's the argument that swayed me because they were also trying to make it that you could use PR money to create public shooting ranges. You can already do that. Oh, you could? Yeah. No, that was like, but that was like recent. I don't think so. No. I think you've always Wit, been. You don't, uh, listen, right, man, maybe I'm wrong. This might be the first time in your life right, that right. I've ever known more than you. <laughs> this might be, be the first time I've ever known more than you about something, but I think that it was like... 
PR money couldn't go to public shooting ranges until something happened, like some point in time in right. the last well, handful of years. Well, I'll, we'll figure that out. You could be right about that. I thought I know. Dude, this. I would you... pay money to know that I'm right. Like oh. I mentioned earlier, but let me. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Here's what I remember about the debate. The debate was one that everyone went out and shot old washing machines up out in the woods, and it was mm-hmm. trying to like get that centralized shooting so that everybody didn't have their own patch of their own gravel pit where they went and. Through threw cans and bottles and appliances out and blew holes in it. So you're trying to reduce that. And the other thing was that it would, if people have more places to shoot and feel more comfortable shooting, they're buying more sporting equipment, they're buying more ammunition and more money. And so it was like viewed as like an investment in the PR fund because Correct. most of the PR money doesn't come from hunters. No. Most of the PR money comes from shooters. If an old granny in New Jersey has a pocket pistol, she probably paid into PR. Yeah, exactly. She might be an anti-hunter. Yeah, and if you're a if you're a decent hunter, you're you maybe do you one box of you know ammo a year. That's what got that's yeah. what friends of mine like at the NSSF they were laughing about is um one of these guys is like you know I hunt all the time I got like a gun that I got from my dad I buy like a box of shells every few years I'm not the guy kicking into this fund right the guy kicking into this fund is shooting his two two three down at the range yep. Now, granted, there's a lot of crossover there. Yeah, but I yeah, mean, just yeah. it's just funny point, and it's like hunters are the ones that are always like PR, PR, Pivot Robertson, you know, right? A little bit blind to like where the bulk of that money's coming from. Yeah, but I just think we need to do something out there to you know engage, attract people because you know the demographics of hunting are not great either. I mean, it's an old white and getting older, and at some point they're going to drop off that cliff. No, because Phil's starting to hunt. How oh, old okay. do you feel? 29. Now, look at that. 29. That'll okay. knock the average down. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're all set now. <laughs> I'll get on it ASAP. <laughs> but, you know, and again, and we actually are seeing some good growth. I mean, obviously, women are coming into hunting, you know, in a you know way they haven't in the past, uh-huh. which is great. I mean, I think you guys have been instrumental in sort of getting that food side of people coming into hunting because they want to have, you know, harvest their own locally sourced, high protein, you know, non-GMO meat. Yeah, so I think those are the areas we're seeing growth, which is why you combine things like CWD, which is scary. It may push people away from hunting. And oh, it absolutely we, will. And the man. fact that we haven't been able to advertise hunting, you know, those are, you know, that's the death spiral. So you love it. I love it. Two thumbs. Two thumbs. Up. Up. Not even kind of tipped to the no, side. No, it's good. And again, you can't use, you know, no state is going to, they, they can't, but no state would take all that money and just, you know, do advertising campaigns because that's not what they do. Yeah, so I So it's you. just, you know, you, that didn't happen on the, you know, the fishing side. So. Yeah, the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation was funded through the Dingle Johnson funds, the Wallet Bro funds. And, you know, they get you know, maybe like $7 million a year to run these big national campaigns on, you know, take me fishing. And it's worked. And we've showed this worked. Okay, Phil, play the sound. If you want a primer on big grain migrations, you should go listen. To, just scroll back down through the episodes. Here's a good research question for someone sitting here. Uh, no, I, I remember the name of it. Scroll back down and listen to a podcast episode that we did called Landscape of Fear. And it's a primer on big game migration. So pause the episode right now before Wit starts talking. Listen to Landscape of Fear. And then in a couple hours, we'll see you as you come back to hear whether Wit has thumbs up or thumbs down 2019 big game migrations. Meaning... uh, Basically, what that comes down to is meaning the viability and productiveness of lands that are used by migrating big game. They're used by big game. How are we we doing? Good. 
We know a lot more about it. Yeah, and that's been the because key. of what you learned when you listen to landscape of fear is like how we're starting to learn about how animals use the landscape. Yep. Because of emerging technologies. Exactly. And this is something that, you know, has really, I think Wyoming to a large degree sort of pioneered this, you know, with a lot, you know, beginning with Path of the Pronghorn, but then you know, a lot of stuff that Hall Sawyer and, you know, guys like that have done in terms Matt of Matt Kaufman. Matt Kaufman yeah. in terms of the mule deer migrations. And not only did they, you know, get good data, they got such cool video footage. And it really captured the imagination and National Geographic picked it up and pushed it out. And so all of a sudden it became sexy. And then, you know, Dave Bernhardt, uh, his predecessor, Ryan Zinke, you know, did a secretary order, I think, 3372, something like that, 3362, that, uh, you know, basically told the federal agencies within the Department of the Interior to work together to identify these migration corridors and to take the conservation actions necessary to protect them. Yeah, uh when you listen to Landscape of Fear there, uh, everyone that just rejoined us, you, you'll remember the part where we're talking about with emerging technologies around GPS and, and things, um, identifying little things that could be patches of ground 75 yards wide along the edge of a lake that literally hundreds of animals pass through. And the ability to be so targeted about like this little thing really matters. Yep. It, it no, allows you to be it allows you to be really precise, you know. So we were arguing with the Department of the Interior early on in this, you know, this administration and are you know are encouraging them to do this. You know, the points are pretty simple. I mean, it's you want interagency, so you want to talk about, you know, sort of breaking down the silos between the different agencies, the state, federal, private collaboration. It's, you know, highly charismatic megafauna. It is relatively small areas of actual conservation because, you know, yeah, you're going to need to protect some broader areas, but otherwise it's just a pinch point here or there. And I said you can use a bunch of other people's money. You know, for example, in the transportation bill, the highway bill, you know, we just got, you know, $250 million in the Senate version for an experimental program over five years for highway crossings, for big game migrations and for aquatic connectivity. Are you weird? Are you aware that those are controversial? Well, I know they are in places like Island Park, Idaho. In general, no, they're not that controversial. Let me tell you where it is. It's step one in the massive government takeover to run people out of their It's like, you know, this country really went downhill when they made an overpass so so many animals didn't get killed on the highway. That's when I knew America had – I'd had enough of this country. I want my right to hit a deer if I can. (laughs) Anyway, no, I mean, most of the time it's not controversial. And I think that, you know, so the way it happened under this administration is they – put out in order all Western states and focused on three species, mule deer, elk, and pronghorn, told the states to nominate three to five core migration corridors. And, you know, then the Department of the Interior would, you know, basically commit resources to helping protect those. Joe's a rumor. Uh, I don't mean to keep interrupting you about this. Well, I do because I'm doing it. But uh, there's a rumor that they're using it to um, move the deer away from public hunting areas. I hadn't heard that one. They're okay. channeling them. It's, it's enviros channeling the deer and, and helping them pick routes where they won't be uh, subject to getting shot at. Yeah, it was, it was hard training those initial gear with the t- collars to go those different routes they'd never been before. But yeah. After they got through that hurdle, then yeah. No, I mean, that's just, you know, it's just that crazy talk. This is something that makes sense for everybody. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, we've seen the, you know, the highway bill is going to contain this program. We've seen states, you know, Wyoming has, you know, done, has sort of been the lead on this, but they're even, you know, Mark Gordon is doing an executive order right now 
that you know is laying out how to formalize this process moving forward as they designate new ones. Those big lefties over in Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the Polis administration in Colorado pushed through an executive order on migration corridors. So you're seeing it have ripple effects in a variety of different states in the West. Well, that ma- mega one on the 101, right? Um, to um, yeah, the the wildlife crossing over the 101 freeway in yep. California. Yep. Outside of LA, there has anything been using it? Wait, it's not going to be complete oh. sometime this year, I think, is what they're saying. But that's the going to be the most expensive overpass in the United States. I know and one legitimate. We heard from one guy. I never fact checked him on this, but a angry listener wrote in and uh, was talking about all this money they spent building one. Maybe it's in Washington State. Somewhere they spent a bunch of money building one, and then it just didn't work. I mean, that was... He said, know, like, a coyote went over that no, thing no, once. I, mean, you I don't got, know if it's true. All, I got, never fact-checked you, about you it. got to give these things time. And, you know, Ed Arnett did a pretty good video that's on our website that sort of talks about this. You know, the, you got to give them a little bit of time to work. Second, you have to have fencing, you know, that goes along with them. Because you have to funnel the animals toward this. Yeah, because you're getting them to do something they don't normally do. Right. But, you know, I think the, you know, the certainly in Wyoming, you know, the evidence is overwhelming, along with other places, that once they figure this out, they use them like crazy. And not just, you know, one species, but a host of different species. Small mammals, birds prefer to fly over them. They've got like, huh. you know, reptile really? crossings yeah. in New Jersey. You know, so it's, you know, they've got, you know, it, it, it makes sense on a number of different levels. I remember when I was a kid, uh, snapper turtles would always get hit real bad when you drive north to Muskegon Marsh. And um, they put up this really low fence, like a knee-high fence that channeled snapper turtles into the right thing. I remember people being mad about it. Just like, kind of like this, like, yeah, those idiots. It's like, and I remember thinking, like, what, like, what exactly is the problem? Right. But it just insulted people that someone would spend effort to have lots of snapping turtles every June when they're going to lay eggs, not get killed. They wanted to see them get killed. Hey, well, if you hit a snapping turtle in the middle of the night, it keeps you awake. Yeah, and they're like insulted by. It. I remember calling, mm-hmm. people in my own family were like eye rolly about the fact that you would try to keep all your snapping turtles from getting crushed on the highway when they come up the lay. Yeah. It's this giant marsh, and it's like really, for them, it looks like suitable nesting habitats. They need to get out and dig a hole in the sand. And you build this big artificial thing, and every turtle in the area tries to climb up there and get smacked by a thing, and people are like, just, I don't know. Yeah. No, I don't know. Well, anyway, I think overall, though, the migration corridor stuff has been you know really a positive thing. I think it's spreading, and it's got good momentum, and the exception of a few weird places, it's not controversial. It's something, again, that I think everyone can agree on. I sure think so. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe... How many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use? This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com 
slash meat eater. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Fisheries. Yeah, it's a uh, mixed bag, you know, sort of sideways. Sideways thumbs? Sideways thumbs. Tell so, me more. You know, so a lot of the fisheries. What is, are the big issues with fisheries? Well, we've got, you know, fisheries is a broad term. I mean, there's freshwater, there's saltwater. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the focus we've been doing is on the, you know, the saltwater side, the marine fisheries. Now, we did get a bill passed in, you know, late last year. You know, the year before, uh, called the Modern Fish Act, which for the first time recognizes that recreational fish should be managed differently than commercial fish. Okay. Commercial fish, you know, are really managed for maximum sustained yield. So you're going to, you need instantaneous data. You're pushing that species right to the edge and you have to have really good data for that. And you can do that with commercial fishing because you have a limited number of ports and you can actually count the fish. Wreck fishing, you can't do that. I mean, you have people spread out everywhere over a million little docks, marinas, and there is always, but you can't manage them the same way. So instead of trying to you know, push that commercial you know, management paradigm down on the wreck fishing, which is what NOAA, National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, has always done, and to the point where we're getting a ton of controversy in things like red snapper in the Gulf, where the lack of certainty on numbers were causing the agencies to shut down the fishery you know, in nine days and seven days and three days. So if you and I were planning a trip down there, We'd have no idea, you know, if we booked our hotel room, we booked our guide, whether the season would actually be open or not. It's just not the way to manage recreational fishing. So Modern Fish Act passed, 
and it did a few different things. I mean, the main one said to the National Marine Fisheries Service, you have the ability to try these different things that may work better for you know, recreational you know, fishermen. Let's use the waterfowl model. Yeah, so go out and you do surveys in the Arctic of what the breeding populations are going to be. You look at how many ducks get shot, and then you set a season. You yeah. know when it opens, you know what the bag limit's going to be. The end of that season, you reevaluate. Now, you have to be pretty conservative for that to work because you can't be way off or else you just crush a species. So honestly, it's better for conservation anyway if you were to apply that model for wreck fishing, which is the same way with the model we do on freshwater fisheries, you know, be it largemouth bass or trout or anything else. I mean, there's a bag limit. You know what it is. You know when the season starts. You know when it ends. And we just haven't been doing that at recreational side. So now that's going to get changed in a lot of these sort of hot-button fisheries. And the hot-button fisheries are the ones where you have mixed stocks. So part of it is commercial. Part of it is recreational. Yeah. Red snapper being a classic case. The all recreational stocks, things like you know, redfish, you know, bonefish, tarpon, those are all well-managed because they're managed with that same sort of you know, precautionary principle that we manage waterfowl with. And so, so we finally got that changed. Now the agencies in the process are going through a bunch of rulemaking to determine how it might use that. And there are different ways you could do it. You could do a tag system. You could do you know, these bag limits. You could do fathom limits where you know, outside for ground fish – you know, under a certain level is wreck fishing outside of its commercial Yeah, fishing. that's it, like in, in Washington, there's a lot of things like you can fish within at different times of year right. within certain depths. Yeah. So you deal with a lot of the bycatch issues with things like that. Yeah, so it's just being a little bit more creative. But the agency, because that wasn't the way it was used to doing things on commercial side, was always very reluctant to do that. Now it has a green light to do it. The other thing that the agency was very reluctant to do was to use, you know, different data collection techniques. So it would... You know, they'll do telephone surveys and mail surveys asking you how many fish you caught, you know, last summer, you know, which needless to say were not – Highly accurate. Highly accurate, not instantaneous <laughs> like, by any means. Talking, talking to a bunch of fishermen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you about this one in particular. Take your arm off. So the states got so frustrated <laughs> with this. A bunch of the states period their own basically, you know, you know, you know iPhone-based you know, systems where you're basically doing instantaneous reporting. You don't have to tell where your honey hole is, but you tell, you know – how many fish you caught, what general size. And, you know, so all of a sudden you have, you know, this instantaneous data on the rec side, which the agencies had never had before. And so part of what the Modern Fish Act did was, again, give the National Marine Fisheries Service the green light to use these alternative data, you know, mechanisms, you know, to manage the fisheries. And L.A. Creel is the one in Louisiana. There's a separate one in Florida. There's a separate one in Texas. But they just make a ton more sense in, you know, this modern age than a telephone survey months after the fact. Yeah. I mean, the telephone service in Montana, I, 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 I wholly buy into the system. I do. But every year I'm like, uh, uh, yeah, you got a buck. Well, what region? Um, and what unit? Like, you know, like, my, uh, you know, my, my, uh, aunt's <laughs> place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yo, Cal, do you know this, that, um, in south, like at the, at our fish shack and in southeast Alaska, no, there's just like an order that came down: no non-pelagic rockfish whatsoever. Oh, so no, no yellow eyes, or, no quillbacks. No way, God, those things are tasty. I saw the yellow eye. I mean, obviously, yellow eye no is going to make yeah, more. No non-pelagic. I think yeah. it's to protect the yellow eye, but no non-pelagics. That's amazing. Which is, has major implications for us fishing because you're going to be. No matter what you're doing, you're pulling up a lot of rockfish, you're going to be, like, sending a lot of rockfish down to the bottom with release devices. Yeah. And no more targeting yellow eyes. 
Yeah. I just bought a new damn rod for jigging yellow eyes. And talk about an easy getting a kid fishing fish. Yeah, you know? but I've been putting a lot of energy into um, uh, pioneering some new greenling and, and uh, oh, cool. flounder spots. So I'm just going to, you know, Brody Henderson right now is tying me some flounder flies. Nice. Uh, we'll, same... we'll make do. We're, we're still going to, we'll still, um, we'll still put some food on the plate. Yeah. Oh, that, oh. Right, yeah. No, okay. So, uh, just got sent this last night. Texas Parks and Wildlife apparently just um, tried a case, convicted guy, got fined twenty six thousand dollars for being sixteen or seventeen red snapper over the limit. No, from last year. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's that's as far as I got into it. So uh, that's I got. There goes that new truck. Do. Man. So obviously, red snapper is pretty hot button. Yeah, and it has fishery. been for a while. And it's, I think, a lot of the controversy on red snapper has calmed down since, you know, this, you know, the Modern Fish Act passed and basically the feds you know, turned over management to the states. And the states are doing a good job. So tell about the Manhattan deal. So Manhattan is, uh, Manhattan. The, is the basically the base of the food chain on the East Coast. And it's also in the Gulf. It's, it's a little fish. It's called Bunker. It's called Pogi. Oh, okay. And uh, super oily. You don't want to eat it, but everything else wants to eat it. And, the bait uh, fish of choice, right? The bait fish of choice. And not just for, you know, striped bass and weak fish and bluefish, but for, you know, whales, for eagles, for osprey, you name it. And That's one of my, that's one of the areas where I have least experience hanging around. The, so like the, the, uh, the, the, the Atlantic. All right, we can change that. That part of it. That chunk of the Atlantic. So, you know, in the, in the old days, back in like the 1900, early 1900s, there were these, you know, basically reduction industries up and down the East Coast. And the reduction industries would go out in a purse saying, What do they call it? Reduction. So they would catch these, you know, the Menhaden, bring them back, grind them up, reduce them to oh. fish food, to pellets, to fish oil, okay. to fertilizer, to a variety of other things. So you things. go down to the drugstore and buy your Omet, your... Um... Yeah, you're eating probably Menhaden. Your, your fish oil pills. Yes, yes, which are useless, but that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so over time, because... That doesn't keep you alive forever? No. So, so you, you tell me that the, that the supplementary... I have no idea. Uh, drug industry has lied to me? <laughs> <laughs> I actually have no idea. I'm way outside my comfort zone on okay. that one. We call that Big Vita. <laughs> <laughs> Big Vita has lied to me? So Here. back in the turn of the century, you had these reduction fisheries up and down the East Coast. And to this point where they almost wiped out Menhaden and basically almost wiped out everything that eats them. Because big schooling fish, you can just get on them and clobber them. Right. Yeah. You just, I mean, the way it's done today... And today, so basically state by state ban- started banning this type of fishing. Only one state still allows it in the Atlantic, and that's Virginia, and has one plant owned by a company called uh, Omega Seafood, which was recently purchased by Cook, which is the, you know, the, they have big aquaculture. Not uh, Matt sam- Cook. Salmon farming. No, different Cook with an E. <laughs> they have salmon farming operations on the Atlantic, up in Canada and Maine. They have uh, had them out in Puget Sound. They got kicked out of Washington State because they're such bad actors. Tons of Clean Water Act violations, tons of escapements of Atlantic salmon yeah. into steelhead habitat. So not a great company. But anyway, they own Omega. So one plant still owns it. You can they, imagine when that guy gets sitting around and complaining, big cigar in his mouth. Oh, yeah. I'd love to hear it. So anyway, so this one plant you know, catches 80-plus percent of, of all the commercial Menhaden on the Atlantic. And it has you know, big boats, has spotter planes. But they're only fishing Virginia waters. No, no. They can fish in, you know, so federal Internet. Oh, so they go outside so 70 go, miles. Go out or three miles. Three yeah, miles. Three miles. Okay. So that three to 200, that's the federal waters. So they can do it out there, and then they've also been fishing it's in the th- Chesapeake oh, there, Bay. It's three to 200. Mm-hmm. Oh, where did I get 70 miles from something? I don't know. Yeah. 
Is it based off the bank, like with the drop off, maybe? I don't know. This was all done back in the, you know, when Magnuson Act came into, you know, early in the 1970s. So you go off you Virginia can, three miles. You can catch Menhaden in federal waters. Yeah. Oh, then you just go off anyone's coast. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, so that's where, you know, it was front page of the New York Times this past year because, you know, they, you know, the big bunker schools were up there off of Long Island and whales and all the whale watching boats were out there, you know, watching this spectacle of nature. And here comes Omega. With the spotter planes and its little, you know, big factory ships and this, you know, this Persane boats and comes out circling around them, scooping them up while the whales are out there hitting them. And while the recreational anglers are on them, the spite stripe bass are blitzing them. Everybody's all pissed. Everyone's pissed. Yeah. And here it goes, gets brought back. So ground up into fish food to be sent to Canada to feed aquaculture salmon, another totally unsustainable industry. And to That's get- That's what sh- they're using it for? Oh, yeah. And to get shipped back into the U.S., you know, it's- at, you know, so you can buy salmon that has an ingredients list on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. When you yeah. buy salmon and you see that it's got ingredients, because like normally you don't need to label stuff, but since they <laughs> dyed it red. And it all sorts of antibiotics. <laughs> should and, say yeah. salmon. Yep. Salmon with an asterisk. So anyway, so Omega, what we've been trying to do is change the way Menhaden are managed to go from single species management, which is basically how many fish can you kill before you crash the stock, to yep. ecosystem management, meaning what does the ecosystem need? And then based on that, how many can you take out without messing things up? Yeah. And that's probably going to happen this coming year. And it's been a pretty nasty fight all along. Uh, meantime, this past year, Omega decided it didn't like you know, the federal limits, you know, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission limits on Menhaden. And so it just decided to give them a big middle finger to the agency and went in and blew through its, you know, cap for the Chesapeake Bay. And so caught, you know, you know millions of extra pounds of fish. You know, that With what repercussions? So they were, I think, expecting, and who knows what was inside their head, that, you know, they could go to, you know, Secretary of the Interior, Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, and get him to waive any sort of penalties. Now, you know, we as the wreck fishing community, as well as the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, and every single state on the Atlantic, including Virginia, because the recent governor does not like, you know, that fishery, uh, voted, you know, to basically find, you know, Virginia and Omega out of compliance and to penalize them. So that fishery... So Virginia been, wanted itself fined. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so that, you know, Wilbur Ross, to his credit, you know, ruled in favor of the commission and shut down that fishery. Now, that doesn't really mean anything because the fishery shut down in the winter anyway. This just happened in December. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it means is that now the state has to come into compliance and there's going to be a penalty. You know, for all those fish extra that it caught out of the Chesapeake Bay, it's going to get reduced that from its overall quota. Now, listen, I think they ought to be kicked out of the Chesapeake Bay altogether. I'd love to see this you know, type of fishing end. If bait fishermen want to do Menhaden, that's great. I mean... We've so wiped out herring fisheries. A lot of lobstermen in Maine and other places are looking for other bait. Menhaden is the logical one for that. All four using that. That's awesome. Asian cart going yep. up to Maine for bring, lobster bait. But bring it in. What you, what you, so you're saying like that, like, like small scale stuff like that, but you're saying like the industrial harvest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean these big reduction fisheries, which are you grind them up and you know, turn them into oil and pellets. And export. Yeah, that's just it just doesn't make any sense. Now, and the you know, the the crazy thing on this too is that. You know, Omega decided during this process to add political weight to its cause to get itself certified on the Marine Stewardship Council as sustainable, which doesn't make any sense for a host of reasons. We fought that. You know, they got it on the Atlantic and they got it in the Gulf. And there's not even a catch limit in place in the Gulf. I mean, it's totally the Wild West down there. And, you know, so it's just you know, crazy. So anyway, but what it has done is galvanize the fish community, the recreational fish community, 
behind this cause. We won on the compliance fight in the Atlantic and the Chesapeake Bay. You know, we're going to win, I think, on ecological management, changing the framework, and then we need to go down to the Gulf and put hard catch limits in place down there. Okay. Phil? Pebble Mine. Man, two, Pebble Mine's been two, going on a long time, down. man. Two thumbs, two thumbs down. down. Two thumbs down. So we thought this thing was, you know, pretty much dead. And, you know, we're putting nails in the coffin a few years ago. Yeah. It's and been it, hard to track. It's been hard to follow. Yeah. So issue fatigue. Well, there was some of that too. Yeah. Um, but it's a things, this is one thing where it is a sea change from the last three years. So the Obama administration, I think to their credit, you know, basically put up some very hard sideboards on any mine that could be developed in that area. Which can, you, can you give people not just real quick bring mm-hmm. people up to speed? Like what is, when we when people say pedal mine, what are they talking about? They're, they're talking about one of, would be one of the world's largest open pit mines at the headwaters in a gold and copper mine, headwaters of the two most productive sockeye of salmon rivers in you know, North America, the Quijac and the Nushigak. Okay, and in the world, in the world. So you know there, it, it, you know basically it's the backbone of a. Half billion dollar a year commercial fishery, which it creates a surface fishery. lake of highly. It creates a, it would create a surface lake of highly contaminated water. That would have to be maintained in perpetuity the, in an behind, active yeah. in an active fault zone behind a behind a you know a, a, an impoundment structure. Right. That this water would never be cleaned. Correct. And you would need to keep it in place because should it. And not only that, because of what would eventually be the size of the CMI, mine, you're going to have to put in not only roads and harbors, but you know utilities, you know basically a power plant, and you're going to open up an entire area to you know other impacts. So, and this it, is like from moose hunters, salmon fishermen, bear hunters. Everybody hates this, the except natives, a couple of people, except for some Canadian speculators, you know, who want to you know basically this Northern Dynasty, which is the company that's pushing this. You know, once essentially, you know, sort of, you know, to make a bunch of money on this thing, sell it off to somebody else and get out of the business. So anyway, it's, uh, it was on life support. Then, uh, president, as the story has it, and I have no idea if this is true, president stops st- on his way back from North Korea, stops to refuel in Anchorage. Alaskan governor, who likes the mine, likes any sort of development project, spends time with him on Air Force One. Trump goes back to D.C., tells EPA to make this thing happen and the Corps of Engineers. And all of a sudden, the Corps of Engineers, which takes you know six years for a restoration project to do the permitting in a place like Florida or Louisiana, is you know has never moved faster on any project ever, and we're going to basically moving creening toward approving the permit on this, you know, in you know, right about now. Now they've kicked it back a few months because everybody, including the state of Alaska, including Lisa Murkowski, including Department of the Interior have said, whoa, your analysis is woefully inadequate. You're not looking at all these potential impacts. So, but we still think the Corps of Engineers is going to issue a permit, which means litigation is going to begin. But what it also means is that, you know, the mining company, Northern Dynasty, may get an infusion of cash because the stock price is bound to go up at that point. And it makes this thing far more viable than it's been any time in the past 15 years. Duh. I don't want to tell you about this crazy bet I have about Pebble Mine. I'm not going to tell you about it. Okay. <laughs> With my sister-in-law. It, it's a brutal thing. Like, you're talking about a landscape where like, you couldn't maintain a kiddie pool out there from overflowing or rupturing for any amount of time. Yeah. I mean, the, the groundwater is 
on the surface. Listen, I mean, and the surface water comes down in freaking deluge buckets constantly. Yeah. Like it's just and you're a in, recipe you're for in, disaster. You're in an active fault zone. I mean, you have volcanoes erupting within, you have 75 miles. So, but I mean, and listen, there are a lot of places in Alaska that make total sense for mining. There are a lot of really good mines in Alaska. This is not about being anti-mining. This is about, about the worst place you could ever pick to put a mine is, you know, top of Bristol Bay. What I'm curious to see, um, I don't say this lightly and I wouldn't say about a lot of things, but I'm curious to see what role that civil disobedience would come into play were they to actually go in and break ground to start extracting resources. It's become such a line in the sand issue for such a broad array of individuals from the native community, native Alaskans, sportsmen, environmentalists, commercial fishermen. I wonder if it would be that there would be, um, I just feel like if not, like this would be the kind of thing that would inspire civil disobedience. It's so hard, though, because it's like, look at where it is. Mm-hmm. You know, like the winter population of King Salmon, Alaska is like very, very few. Yeah. The summer population isn't anything that would probably be hard to make a human chain out of that, too. No, I know, but it's, it's like if, if, if we can't protect, I think people look at it as a line in the sand issue because if you can't protect Bristol Bay... If it's not worth protecting Bristol Bay, I Where think people is. would be like, yeah. so that means nothing is. <laughs> yeah, nothing. that wasn't good enough. Yeah. yeah. That, mean, that would mean to a lot of people like, we're, okay, we're just, we're done. Yep. Because nothing's sacred. Yep. Anyway, this is going to, you know, I don't think they're going to be breaking ground anytime soon. This is going to be extensively yeah. litigated if the permit is issued. So, you know, and... You know, part of us, you know, running out of the clock and hope you get a more friendly administration and that will, you know, actually do something good for Bristol Bay. Or the current administration will change tack. Yeah, I mean, which is entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah. He listens to public opinion on a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. Just got to hit him on the Twitter feed. 2020 outlook. Thumbs in, thumbs out, up, down. You know, I think we're going to get some stuff done. Really? Um, Yeah. I mean, it's going to. play, uh, Phil, you got got the noise in there. Um, You know the noise? Yeah. Sort of, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> obviously, That's you, know, all we need right there. you have two things that are going to make you know, progress on anything difficult, impeachment and the election. A pro- so, progress on anything? Anything. Do you wish now, the impeachment hadn't happened just because it makes everything so hard to do? Or is that not something you're comfortable getting into? I'm not going to get into that one. Okay. So I just think that it is what it is. Now, the it way happened. That, now it, I got to deal with it. Yeah, we got to deal with it. Now, the way the rules are set up, they're going to, you know, basically the impeachment sounds like they're going to convene at one o'clock every day. So, which means we have some period in the morning to get a little bit of business done. But basically, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's a different distraction. So, I know that... What's been know, fr- I'll just tell you, Wit. This isn't Wit talking. This is me talking. Okay. What's been frustrating about this thing is going through with something that you know won't happen. It's not going to happen. That's all. Yep. yep. It feels to me like, like, let's say I was going to, um, I'm like, I'm going to dig a hole. And Cal's like, uh, no matter how, how much you dig, I will fill that hole back in. And I can, I can guarantee you that I will fill the hole back in. But I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to dig it anyway. And then spend a bunch of money doing it. But go on. Yep. So again, you, you could be right, but it is what it is. And we're going to work around it. No, so I, I am right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, in an election year, you know, there you 
you really have until, say, the you know, May to get stuff done. And then everything gets too tied up with politics. And then you have another window after the election uh, until you know, the new Congress is sworn. And some radical stuff can happen during that window. Big time. So the, you know, the, first of all, you're trying to clear the deck of a lot of easy stuff in the, right now in the next month or two. And I think that, you know, I was... Uh, I'm sorry, real quick. Uh, how much time... Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the impeachment is going on now. Or, you know, the Senate trial is going on now. Yeah, not yet, but it will start sometime soon. So how much... Uh, so forget that part of it. Mm-hmm. How much time of activity do we have before the election cycle just throws everything into chaos? End of May. End of May. End of May. And then everybody's just thinking about that. Yeah. I mean, you're, you may some, you know, a few things, odds and ends get done, but basically it's just, you know, everybody's out campaigning, it's too political, so everything gets put on hold until after the election, in which case you, when you come back and a buttload of stuff gets done between, you know, that first week in November and, you know, the new Congress gets sworn Whether it's an outgoing, or, whether it's an outgoing administration or an empowered administration yeah, that either, doesn't need to worry about re-election. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, know, you have the dynamic of what happens with the you know, Senate, what happens with the House, what happens with the president. But at a minimum, you know, it's a place so you can get a bunch of stuff done. Yeah. And uh, because you have retiring members, and there are a lot of them on, you know, on both sides, you know, who are going to say, you know, that, all right, this is a chance where I don't actually have to be political. I can do what's right for a change because I'm not running for re-election. Yeah. Again. And, you know, get stuff done there. So anyway, I think there are some opportunities. I mean, I think there is a, you know, sort of a broad wildlife bill, you know, that we've been, you know, putting through that has, you know, really a bunch of non-controversial stuff. NACA reauthorization. Tell me National, what that is. North American Wetlands Conservation Act, okay. which funds wetland restoration and protection around the country. Uh, it's about funded about $50 million. That gets reauthorized. Uh, they're creating a CWD task force. Um, there's the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation reauthorization, the authorization of a national fish habitat bill, which is essentially the fish equivalent of the North American Wetlands Conservation Act. All this stuff is non-controversial and has been passed by committees or by houses or one body or the other. This is all going to get bundled and it's doing it right now. Uh, we expect actually to pass the Senate last night. It didn't probably pass today and go over to the House. So this becomes, you know, a bunch of good stuff, which is not controversial and everybody can agree on. We can get that done quick. So, you know, I think that's good. Besides, oh, go ahead. I mentioned the fact that Murkowski wants to do an energy bill you know, as soon as basically impeachment wraps up before things get too political, that may be another opportunity for a bunch of public lands provisions. Um, you know, so I think there will be some things like that to get done, but a lot of the focus is going to be on the election and what happens after the election. And honestly, what, you know, TRCP will do is, you know, we will start developing, we'll do scenario planning. You know, if, you know, Trump loses, if Trump wins, if the Senate flips, the Senate doesn't flip, you know, all these different scenarios and that sort of, you know, like how are are you going to keep conservation at the front of the, and then what do we need to do and what are the priorities and how do we present them? I mean, climate is going to be a big issue because, you know, even, you know, the deniers are recognizing that they can't, you know, not deal with this for, you know, very much longer. Yeah, I would imagine, I mean, everyone does. I mean, if, if, the, if the administration, I mean, never mind, like, what will happen in the House and Senate. If the administration switches, there's going to be a ton of, I'm guessing there's going to be a ton of climate activity. I think even if it doesn't switch, there's going to be a bunch. If you look at the polling, you know, you look at Republicans under the age of 30, climate is number one or one of the top issues. So, you know, the party is has to deal with that younger folks who recognize this is an issue and need to deal with it in some fashion. Yeah. So I think you're now you're not going to see a green new deal maybe, 
But you're going to see, particularly on the no, land I side. No, I think the green. Okay. I mean, again, what you're going to see, though, I think is things that folks, again, generally agree on. Yeah, you got to reduce emissions, but you also have to do an investment on the land. Sequestration, you know, adaptation, resilience. And those are things that our community loves. They're great for fish and wildlife. And that I think Democrats and Republicans can agree on. So you could see some sort of climate package with that sort of focus moving forward. So I think there are going to be some opportunities moving forward, but a lot of it is what we do this year is positioning ourselves for 2021 and beyond. You know, what's interesting is uh, in, in a, it's coming up pretty soon through my kids' schools, there's this night where they can go do, it's like this technology night. My wife understands better than I do. But anyway, she was, prevent, she was presenting with them the menu of things because you go down and you pick like four seminars. Your kids pick four seminars they want to go to in our um, seven-year-old, nine-year-old were picking what seminars they wanted to go to through this night, and you roll through them. And the seminars were like the li- uh, a year in the life of a grizzly, sturgeon migrations, um, a thing about developing computer apps. It's like some wild, half wildlife stuff and half non-wildlife stuff. And one of the things was this sort of like climate change primer. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter very readily pick that one along with the other ones she wanted to do. And um, my boy, without much, uh, without too much persuasion, added the climate one in with one about Native American games and uh, sturgeon. Mm-hmm. I really wanted him to go into uh, waterfowl migration, but he didn't do that one. You can only win so much. Yep, yep. But it's uh, it was a thing that they're aware of. Right. This morning yeah, we woke up to check muskrat traps in the dark and it was warm out. And my son goes, is this because all the garbage? <laughs> and I'm like, well, you're, you're confusing two issues, but let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and quick question, are, are the kids referring to these as seminars? It's got to be like a presentation. No, I, I haven't heard them use the word seminar. It was more presented to them like, you're going to this. Th- I signed you, we signed you up for this thing. You need to pick which ones sound good. And so we read over dinner. My wife, I don't know, there's a dozen things to choose from, whatever. She read through all the descriptions and then put their initials by the ones. And they had too many, so they had to re- narrow it down. Got it. Sturgeon be... migra- I think Sturgeon Migrations was top. I told him, you got to go down there and then come tell me what you learned. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah. I'm just going to be real confused if I show up at the house and your kids are like, so Cal went and saw a seminar the other day. <laughs> I don't know if they'll frame it that way, but I'll be curious to see how they tell you about it. They will tell you about it. I don't know what what they'll use. I don't think they'll use seminar. They'll probably like a thing, maybe. We were at a thing. Yeah. Went to a show. Uh, You know, it's funny today. We're out, you know, in the dark, checking muskrat traps in the dark, and we're in a spot where there's a, you know, that flex pipe. It's like eight inch flex pipe, plastic. And it's coming out of, there's a chunk where it's coming out of the ground and snakes across the ground. And then it goes in under the ice on a pond. Someone's doing like some kind of drainage project. And we're hanging around there, near there in the dark. And then later my four-year-old is talking about what's up with the big animal with the big tail. And I'm like, you mean a muskrat? Because he's a big, long tail. And I'm like, the muskrat? No. Uh-uh. You know, the one that can't move? Can, uh, can we bring that home? And so... I get confused. We're about 100 yards away, and I give him the flashlight. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Let's go back and take a look. And we go back, and he shines the light at that black flex pipe, <laughs> 12 feet of black flex pipe <laughs> running between a, the dirt and the ice. And he's like, that thing, that's what 
what's uh you know what animal has that tail <laughs> big one i'm like that, that that would be a i would not be standing here were that an animal's tail <laughs> that's chunk flex part <laughs> he thought it had got frozen in so hard that it was just stuck <laughs> yeah well, oh, what's your oh. state of uh waterfowl right now getting real interested in waterfowl again and it, it seems like there's the data between migratory waterfowl against like our songbird data right now is oddly in opposition. How where so? It, where it's like, well, we've lost billions of songbirds in the United States, but waterfowl seems to really be kicking ass with the exception of like pintails seem to be taking a hurt. Um, yeah. Geese in the Atlantic Flyer right now are actually down. There's one uh, one bird limit in Chesapeake Bay, Maryland. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. So no, I think that you know the answer is that you know we pay a lot more attention to waterfowl because we have dedicated we have hunters, we have dedicated funding for it. It's a priority, whereas you know songbirds, you know, it's not. And which is really there's another bill in Congress called the Restore America's Wildlife Act that would put some dedicated funding toward these non-game species which the states have responsibility for managing, but really have no dedicated resources to manage. So, no, I agree with you is that I think the situation probably on a bunch of the songbirds is even worse than we think because our data is pretty poor. Mm-hmm. Real quick, mm-hmm. is it quick? Is it possible to explain like why from a conservation standpoint, what's up with ethanol? So like I, I get it, but I just, yeah. I get it a little bit, but, but tell me what, why is ethanol part of, so, Why does it matter from, so, from what we're looking at? So ethanol has sort of a long and checkered, uh, you know, sort of environmental history. It was originally created, you know, both to supplement, you know, markets for farmers, but also when during the oil crisis as, you know, a you domestically produced transportation fuel. Yeah, you better explain like from high, high level what we're talking about. Yeah. So this is basically you take corn and you can do it with other cellulosic, you know, plants. And you convert it into a fuel. And it's the same way you'd make alcohol. In fact, with ethanol, you got to put a denaturant in it to keep people from drinking it. So it's, you know, same as grain alcohol, you know, and it, you know, runs pretty well in cars. And, you know, it's been used for years, going back to Henry Ford as a transportation fuel. You would have race car drivers use it or methanol in some of their, you know, cars today. But the issue became in when, you know, Congress basically created an ethanol mandate. And under the renewable fuel standard, which expires in, I think, 2021 or 2022, essentially 10% of the nation's gasoline fleet has to be ethanol. Now, the goal had been originally that that transition from corn ethanol to cellulosic ethanol over time, switchgrass, you know, kudzu, and who knows what the hell you'd make it out of. But something other than corn. Fragmites? Sure. Do it for it. I mean, it there all depends on the starch content, I guess, of the, you know, where the plant is. Steve Kendra, but, he's listening in. But the problem is that that's, that transition has never happened. It stayed with corn ethanol. And when you had that time of, like, go-go corn prices, you know, when we lost, you know, 6 million acres of, you know, pasture and grassland to cro- row crops, it was that ethanol mandate that was largely driving that. Okay. So a lot of, you know, you know, pheasant hunters, duck hunters, you know, can't stand ethanol because they see it. The mandate as creating basically an artificial incentive to convert habitat for you know corn, mm-hmm. and you know a lot of the you know urban you know folks that don't like high food prices see it as you know an abomination too because it's, it's food that's now going to a fuel in a, basically a subsidized way. So you know I felt a lot more strongly about it you know when you know prices were high and we're seeing all this conversion. 
it's it's hard to you know you know again right now nothing's going to happen before the renewable fuel standard comes back up before Congress and Congress decides what to do with it. But when you go back to the the dismal state of the farm economy right now, you know I just think that you know even groups that you know don't like the ethanol you know, mandate are backing off a little bit right now because it's just, just on hold. Yeah, because you just don't want to do anything else to make you know life even worse in ag country. When you see a gas station with giant signs talking about ethanol free, mm-hmm. are they performance? Yeah, that's, so that's an issue. That's, that's that's not them being pro or con, pro or against or whatever. No, farming, it's, no. So corn. the you know, a lot of the old equipment, especially things like chainsaws, snowmobiles, you know, couldn't handle ethanol. So you had a, when it was first moved into the gas stream at ten percent blends, there were a lot of problems with some of those you know small engines in particular. Okay. Now all those I engines, could never tell if they're being political or they're just talking about how you could get good boat gas there. Now, so all basically you know. Today, you know, all, you know, essentially modern engines can deal with 10% ethanol. The problem is that the ethanol industry, which is pretty greedy, uh, has been trying to get the, you know, the blender percentage kicked up to 15% and EPA has approved that. Now, at 15% ethanol, you could have a very modern outboard engine on your, you know, twin 250s on your big boat going out offshore. What about my 60-40 Honda jet? It'll it'll screw that up too. Yeah, (sighs) the 15% ethanol now, in theory... You know, it ought to be labeled, and especially marinas won't be selling it. But, you know, a lot of guys will fill up the gas can and take it out to their boat and pour it in. And it does really bad things to engines. And, again, it's just another sort of artificial, you know, subsidy that we really shouldn't be doing. National Marine Manufacturers Association, American Sport Fishing Association have lobbied vigorously. Oh, really? Against increasing that ethanol percentage in gasoline. Huh. Because of what it does to marine engines. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Th- thank a, you. That, that answers some of my own questions, yeah, man. But it's been approved anyway. Avoid E15 on anything in your outboard engines. There you have it, our, our small engine expert, Whit Bosberg. And I've just tapped the extent <laughs> of my knowledge about small engines. <laughs> All right, man. Any final things? Any concluders? Any final things we didn't get to? No. Yeah, you, I, just, I mean, uh, you kind of you were influential in making our list. Yeah, You're, no, I think, uh, I first of all, I appreciate you guys, you know, actually paying attention to this stuff and caring about it. Because, you know, again, most people would rather talk about, you know, deer stand placement or, you know, hunting coos deer in Mexico or whatever it is, which is a lot know, more fun. Know. But, you know, this is, you know, this is the backbone of, you know, what we have in this country in terms of hunting and fishing. And if we don't pay attention to this, we're going to lose it. Yeah. Well, thank you for paying attention to it. Well, thank you guys for paying attention. And thank you for coming on. Um, we seem to schedule it regularly, but it can't be like once a year. Maybe do a mid-year check-in. Sure. Six-month checkup. You know what? Every time my kids go to the dentist, I'm going to have you on. All my six-month stuff will just have, like, the like so, dentist, yeah. wit. I'll be associated with family pain. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Be good, like, election cycle, too. Be like, all right, here's our conservation-minded candidates. Yeah. You know what? Maybe you'll come on. You want to talk about getting people pissed. Is if you come on right before... Uh, you come on right before election time. I think I'm going to avoid that one. I'll come <laughs> in right after the election time. <laughs> come on. Hey, we're a 501c3. We don't, we oh, don't pick Oh, that's signs. true. Yeah. No, that's true. We you, don't pick signs. Yeah. As, so. as TRCP is a nonprofit organization, yep, yep. you guys don't, you guys don't yeah, play we, at that We don't level. have a C4. We don't have a PAC. So we just don't get engaged. Yeah. And you guys work behind, you guys work both. We got to work both What sides. I like about yep. TRCP is you're, uh, you're respectful of, of, bipartisan process and you strive to be just like as effective as is humanly possible 
Well, I think that's the niche our community has always had. And I think that's, you know, when Jim Range created the organization back in 2002, that's, that was his idea. And I think it stands true today that, you know, these are issues that ought to unite and not divide. And they shouldn't be political. Yeah. Unless you hate fishing and hunting. Yeah, well, then they're political. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, thanks again. Oh, Cal, did you have a concluder? Oh, I just... I, What's I, your shirt say on it? I can't... Oh. Oh, I got this for being in a ski race in Sun Valley. You're commemorating the fact that Sun Valley was, what, formed in 1936? I just feel like this is a comfortable sweatshirt. I feel like it was probably formed millions of years ago, Cal. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A highly volcanic area. It's pretty young. Oh, 1936. Yeah. It was just flat till 1936, then it became a valley. That's a fun fact Cal's shirt says Sun Valley, 1936. <laughs> um, oh, I think on the on the... Your selection of political candidates, I just like to tell people, it's like, you're going to always going to have to fight for something, right? So you have somebody who you feel is going to give you an easy out on a topic, you're still going to have to, if you select that person to vote for and they make it in, you're still going to have to push them on the other things that you believe in. Oh, yeah. So. This is just the way it works. Well, and plus part of our job is to educate. I mean, yeah. you have you know, less and less members of Congress coming from rural America. I mean, there's some much more suburban, urban, you know, focus now. And so, if, you know, some member says to you, well, we're just going to have to cook our meat more for CWD. That's not because they're a bad person. It's just because they don't understand the yeah. issue. And it's up to us to educate them. But I think that people, when it comes to selecting uh, candidates that you're going to vote for, I think a lot of people look like, I pick my person and then... I look to them to see what I think about anything, right? So, like, I just go with what they say. Another way of looking at it is you pick your person. You're balancing out. You're making a selection one between two things. You pick them, and then I'm going to pick them, and then I'm going to move them in my direction on all the things I don't agree with them on or work my hardest. And people get uncomfortable with that because they think that when you – that your selection of a candidate is basically – you're saying, that's me, rather than saying, part of that's me, but I really need them to move my direction on a bunch of other stuff, and I'm going to do everything I can in my power to make sure that the whole – that things move in my direction. Right. I'm, I'm choosing you as the person that I want to then be heard from and and get you to see my side. Right. Uh, you good? Phil's good. What's your shirt about, Phil? You got a wine shirt on? And this is my friend's. My friend uh, runs a winery in Kalispell. Tailing Loop Wines. Check it out next time. Does he grow the grapes up there or he buys them from somewhere else? She brings them in from different parts of Washington and ate and puts them in barrels in Kalispell. And you like that wine? Yeah. It's like a fly fishing term, right? Tailing Loop? Yep, yep. It's, yep. it's a fly fishing themed winery. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and you love the wine. I like wine. You don't I li- fish. I like her wine. No. She's got some great art on the labels, though. It's you gonna start. You're going to start fishing, too, now that you're going to start hunting? <laughs> I don't know. I, I went fly fishing once with Cal, and it didn't go well. No, so I, I think I need not. to get better. You didn't enjoy guy. yourself? I Phil? had a great time. Well, I don't, then I, it sounds like it went very well. <laughs> Your friend's got a very inefficient winery because <laughs> it's fly fishing themed. How much yes. property do you own, Phil? Oh, I, I, I own like what, about 11,000 square feet. I don't think about okay. it in acres. I was yeah. gonna see if I could come out and trap your place for muskrats. <laughs> no, sorry. You don't have like much. a pond or anything to sell no. getting messed up by muskrats. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Um all right. 
Thanks again, Whip. Thank you, guys. We'll, 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 we'll go out. This is like the doctor where you, I want on your way out, I want you to schedule your next visit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Whip Osberg, TRCP. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear.